Hey, what's up, Kevin? How's it going? It's going. It's going real good, man. We. If I mean, Kevin, for real, man. Well, he's a pretty cool minion. Well, I mean, so a man can't choose his name. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Come on now. That's a good point. A man cannot choose his name. Quit being Actually, a jerk. You can. you can go change your name. And well, you <laughs> can, but I, I, I mean, quit making fun of the man's name. Jeez, I like I the mean, name Kevin. Me and Kevin just met, dude. I know. Me too. My what? vote was for Kip. Kip. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about Kip real quick. <laughs> so, Kip. When I was at SEAL Team 8, Kip was a civilian that ran like all the budget and stuff for the team. And so when I left SQT and I showed up to SEAL Team 8, all of SEAL Team 8 was on deployment. And so it was like me and like four other new guys. We show up to the team. Everybody at the team is gone. They had deployed to Iraq and, and they've got like two months left in their deployment. Well, Kip was this fat, retired warrant officer, now civilian, and they left him in charge of SEAL Team 8, which compo was composed of one person <laughs> until <laughs> the new, us, the new guys, got there. And um, so Kip was really excited that he was going to get to exercise his authority over us, young frogmen. And Kip was never a frogman. Uh, but boy, when he got to act like one, he took full advantage of it. And so Kip made me and my teammates sit in a closet for about a month and a half and wrap 550 cord around paddles. We wrapped the handles of paddles with 550 cord every day for a month and a half. And these paddles were, were given away as, a, as, as awards. When the team got back from deployment, you know, guys were leaving the team or retiring or whatever. So we, we were making all these paddles for, for awards. And that's my, uh, that's my experience for, with Kip. Um, some other things, too, that I won't talk about. But um, that's the only Kip I know. Let's switch back to Kevin. Uh, yeah. Old Kip. Kip, I hope you're listening to this, man. I know I did you wrong one time. <laughs> I got Kip back. I got sure Kip did. back for making me do those paddles, man. I'm sure you did. So another thing that happened, Kip had, this is how I got him back since I mentioned it. He had all these rental houses. This dude got paid a lot of money to do the job he did as a, GS employee or whatever, you know? And so Kip had all these rental houses. And, um, you know, I've always been a person that liked to work with my hands. And so there was a few weeks there where <laughs> this is so terrible. I used to be a terrible person, man. I'm still, I'm still not perfect, <clears throat> but I used to be a terrible person. He had all these rental houses that needed a bunch of work done. So he kept talking about it and he was like, do any of you guys at the team want to want to do this? We know you, you got some downtime, and so I was like, "Yeah, Kip, I'll do it." And and um, shortly after that, Kip went out of town, and I was supposed to do all that work on those rental houses 
while he was gone. I didn't do any of it. <laughs> <laughs> and he got back and he was so freaking pissed at me, dude. Was he going to pay you? Yeah, he was going to pay me, yeah. And so, why didn't you want to get paid? You just wanted to screw him? <clears throat> I just wanted to screw him, dude. <laughs> he made me... He made me wrap 550 cord on paddles for a month and a half, dude. Well. I put him in a bind, son. <laughs> that was worth more than getting paid. <laughs> i tell you what, man, it was. What a terrible thing to do to somebody. Nah. I could think of worse. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And uh, we got Hal. What's going on, brother Hal? Not much, brother. Have you ever listened to the 307 podcast? I have a couple times. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're here with us, man. Uh, let's talk about the combat standards test. What was y'all's experience with the combat standards test? It was great. Um, that was my first CrossFit workout in a while. I think I've done two this year besides running. So it was nice to get back in the swing, uh, swing of things. Um, just telling Kevin on the way over, <clears throat> matured a little bit in my older age that I never liked to scale. And um, I, uh, I did that today. So I got over, over that mental hump, but it busted my butt hard. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, I yelled at you a few times, Hal. I heard you. I've been yep. yelled before. It's okay. <laughs> I can handle it. I had a direct line of sight on you. You were at one end of the, the, the rack, and I was at the other end of the rack. Yeah. And um, what was the toughest part for you? The wind on the burpees. Yeah, Just man. I'm not used to that uh, anaerobic that much of it. I like to run slow and eat, and uh, that was not that today. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> long distances, so. Uh, it's tough, but it, I need to get back into that. That can add a whole new dynamic to uh, running. Yeah, totally, man. How about you, uh, Kevin? <laughs> hold on. <laughs> hold on. Kevin. Oh, man. You got to quit laughing. No, Kevin. You I mean, Look, dude. You're a jerk. We were getting ready to start this workout, and Jeff's like, if you need to use the bathroom, use the bathroom. We're starting in two minutes. And so I go in the bathroom like three times. There's one stall in the bathroom, right? And yeah. and I see a set of feet, and I'm like, gosh, dang it, man. I got to take a dump before this thing starts. I got two minutes. And like three times I go in there, and the same dude's on the toilet. And I'm like, finally, the last time I walk in there, I'm like, hey, dude, whoever you are in the stall, you got to pinch that thing <laughs> off, son, because we're about to get this thing going. What was happening in there, Kevin? Just gotta go. You gotta go, man. <laughs> <laughs> he was laying it down, dude. Man, that jugger was warmed up, though. He warmed it up you, for me. You make fun of his name. You don't <laughs> let a man crap. Man, I'd be pissed at you if I was Kevin. <laughs> pissed. How did uh? How'd you like the combat standards test, brother? Um, it was good. Yeah, I haven't done a lot of that in a while either. Something long. A lot of repetitions, but I kind of went to, uh, I don't know the right definition, but knee burpees after a while just to keep moving. Yeah. 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 But I saw a couple. doesn't matter how you that. get down. No, it really doesn't. Down. It really doesn't. So, um, chili, not so hot, man. But hey. chili came in at literally to the second. One hour. Yeah, 59, 59. Yeah. Brooke was saying I tried to do that. I didn't even have a watch. I mean, I couldn't have tried. What is your style? No. 
<laughs> it's some people's style. It ain't my style. <laughs> what happened? What do you mean, what happened? It went about how I thought it was going to go. What was your time, Hal? 47-17. What about you, Kev? 32-40. Nice, dude. That's freaking style. Dang, that's fast. Um, well, how, I were, uh, okay, how much I was you, 40, I think I was 40, I don't even remember, 43 or something? I don't even remember. Why were you the slowest person, Chili? <laughs> well, a lot of reasons. A lot of reasons. I, uh, it, I actually didn't do the workout because it's supposed to be 135, 25 reps of 135 front squat. And I did 36 reps of 95. Cause did that's you what, even try 135? Yes. <laughs> it just wasn't happening, huh? You got to power clean it. Yeah. <laughs> so it just wasn't happening. No can do. Okay. So I just did 36 reps and 95 to be the same weight. And then did the one and a half mile run. The hundred burp. Dude. Trying to do freaking a hundred pull-ups with that vest on. You just. My arms are. It's like a one rep max every time. Yeah. So it took me forever. But then the run. Then I was good. Needs more running. (laughs) I didn't run a step this morning. Yeah, you did the easy version. Um, the bike is a cop out, man. When do you? No, pro- it's when, programmed when, to use the bike. When the, do you, the, the workout is the bike. When the, do you the pro- run is the sub? When do you patrol out on a bike? An assault bike. Yeah. When are you? Patro- what do you think it's called an assault? When bike? are you patrolling in and out on a freaking bike? Hey, man. Dang, it's an assault bike, man. You're softer than a dang wet wipe, son. Can't even patrol out on foot. Talk to me when you can power clean <laughs> one thirty-five. We got to get you power cleaning a little yeah. bit more. Yeah, that should be the standard. Well, that was embarrassing. The Humvees would never get loaded if it was up to Chili. Did too. It's true. I loaded it, man. No, you wouldn't have been able to pick up the mod douche to to put it up on the turret. We would have just went into this op without a single heavy weapon. You need we would have had a bunch of ammo cans. You need, yeah. You need someone loading the mod deuce while I'm over there doing lots of reps of lighter weight, you know, getting their ammo cans in there. Couldn't do it without me. You know what we're going to do next time we do this? We're going to get Chili a partner. We're going to try to find someone that's as weak as Chili. And we're going to get them to line up on the barbell side by side. And they can both grab the barbell, do a power clean together. Right? You guys see what I'm saying? And then you guys can do the front. That way it's like you're loading the Humvee with your swim buddy. So we'll do that next time. How many mod deuces do you load in the Humvee? Depends on how many Humvees you got. Yeah. 25 of them? Yeah. You're freaking unsat, brother. Yeah. That's all right, though. I I didn't expect any more out of you. We also have another friend in here that y'all y'all don't know he's in here. I would really love to ask him about his his experience with the combat standards test, but we've determined. Well, he did well. Yeah, he did well. He beat me. Um, and we've determined it's not a good idea for him to be on the podcast. By the way, he ran as well. You gonna give him credit for doing the real workout? Oh. <laughs> 
He beat you and he ran. You ran in and out? Nice, man. Yeah. Yeah. What was your time? Total time. Under 40 minutes with the run. That's solid. Full kit. We had some strong people in there this morning. He actually did 135. Yeah. Freaking beat you. <laughs> well, that's outstanding. It was a good morning. Good PT. Um, You know, I'm real interested uh, how, if you got a lot of you guys listen to podcasts, know how. How, tell the people about yourself, brother, and how you ended up here. Oh, well, um, I'm Hal from Delaware, from the Flatlands, as I'm known. Um, it's actually <clears throat> funny how I ended up even finding out. Uh, Kevin was asking me how I found you guys and someone else today. And I'd started running and looking. I was training for 100. And when you do that, you even think something on social media, things start popping up in your feed, right? Random. And... I was scrolling one day back in October of 21 and I came across this picture and there's this guy with his long beard and like, who is that? And, uh, it was you. And so I clicked on it and I'm thinking, all right, it's got a podcast. Let me hit it. And it happened to be the episode right after the Georgia jewel and started listening. And you were talking about how it wasn't going your way, but, uh, that's not an excuse to quit or give up or not give your best, that you're going to hold the standard throughout. And that resonated with me. So uh, I text my buddy and I sent him the podcast. I'm like, you got to listen to this. And so I hadn't even listened to the whole thing. And I kept on listening. And all of a sudden, all this scripture came out. And I said, holy cow, who is this? What is this going on? And uh, that's what kind of started the journey. So I started listening a little bit. And then the Proving Ground came out, signed up. I think I was the first one to sign up. Yeah. I said, um, had no idea what was going to happen when I showed up, and uh, that was the fun of it. And the rest is history. You know, mm-hmm. um, had a great time there. Went to the basic course, loved it. Went to the Alpine Mission, loved it. And now that spawned something um, out of that. That's just God has taken over um, with that team, and we're just trying to be used by Him to do some amazing things and serve. Mm-hmm. And that's where that's at right now. So. If you guys are wondering what Hal's talking about, Hal taught on Resurrected the other night on Patreon. On Patreon, every three Sundays a month, we do a special episode called Resurrected that is for the Patreon community, the people that support the podcast. And Hal talked about their most recent initiative, their most recent mission that they did in Baltimore, just outside of Baltimore. And... um it's just unbelievable what you guys are are um, are getting out there and doing, man. It it impacted me. Well, as a matter of fact, the book that you were telling us about is sitting right there by your arm. I mean, um, it's such a blessing to me that you know I get to take as much from the relationships that are built <clears throat> through the training that we do together as you guys, the students, get from it, like. It's a, it's such a blessing, man. And what was your, how, what was your, if you had to pick one, what was your favorite mission out of Proving Grounds, Basic Course, or Alpine Trip? I, I'm always interested in how you guys look back on these things. They were all very unique. 
um, and the relationships with each one and with each teammate was amazing. But the stakes got raised um, at the Alpine um, for obvious reasons, and I don't give too much away, but I mean, it's life or death in some spots, and it's a quick bond that forms out there. Yeah. And to get a chance to do things that I've never done or been in a position for in that an environment, um, as well as things that happened on that, that I wasn't expecting that I had to deal with. That was the biggest life lesson out there. Right. Mm. Went into it with one expectation and, um, having to pivot. And I would say that was definitely the, the most impactful. Yeah. Um, for sure. Team Virtus is so special too. Yeah. I mean, that's golly. That's hard to beat. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I love every team. The basic course team, Team 7, is just amazing. The Proving Ground uh, Troop 1 was awesome. Um, but for some reason, Virtus has stayed together. Um, and I literally, if you picked the phone up right now and I said, hey, I need you, they'd be here. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think James, when we were back for um, Troop 3 in, in the Proving Ground, and he was teaching that night, and he was teaching on – you know, what this community can provide and uh, what God is, is doing through it. And he pointed to me and John. He's like, you know, this is what these guys are doing. You know, John flew out, crewed them on the 40-hour. Hal flew out, and they surprised him for his Ironman, right? Like, just out of the blue stuff mm-hmm. that do anything. He's like, how many days have you guys actually been on mission together? And that number's four. That's it. Up until that point. And that bond is just amazing. Mm-hmm. And... um God's just doing something special um, from that. And then this whole thing has shifted as we were getting ready to do a reunion trip and planning it. Uh, One of our teammates would have been or was going to be uh, seven months pregnant at the time. So we couldn't go deep into where we had planned on going. And we said, all right, let's think about it. And we said, hey, why don't we do a missions mission? And that shifted the entire focus of what our purpose was. Mm -hmm. And so prayed on it and looking for things to do. Um, The Baltimore trip obviously got publicized a little bit for a couple different reasons. We wanted to bring awareness to where we were in the city of refuge and what they're doing. Um, There's been a lot of things that we haven't put out there that we've done um, that we don't want to shine a light on. We should go out there and serve and get it done. Um, So really the only reason we put a light on Baltimore was to number one, encourage people to get out there and serve. Uh, you know, my heart is missions, right? To go out there and serve. Um, God has laid out that on my heart heavily. And this team enables that. Um, and secondly, just to bring awareness to what's going on down there in City of Refuge. Mm-hmm. If, and if you guys, listeners, if you're wondering what is Team Virtus, that is the Alpine mission that we ran last year. And they get those those advanced teams get to name their teams, right? So the paddle the paddle team that's Team Genesis. They just sent I me like their it. team name the other day. So yeah, they it, all the other courses, the basic course, the proving grounds. They don't get to name. They they get whatever the number is of their class. But these advanced missions, they name their team. They take a lot of ownership, almost complete ownership over what happens out there 
So that's what Hal's talking about. And, um, yeah, man, it's freaking awesome to watch you guys. Everybody always asks me, Chad, how do you, how do you pick, what are you looking for? Who are the people that you want to work with and train with? And how do you pick people to come out on these courses and this and that? <clears throat> the number one thing is I'm looking for people who, when they send in their application, I'm looking for people who, who aren't selfish, right? Because I can only do so, like, I'm just one guy, like, like I can only touch so many people and, and my, and obviously it's not just me. It's my whole team of instructors here. Um, so we are limited. So what we want to do is we want to spend time with people who are going to do what Hal is doing that because it compounds everything that we learn together. If we all go and share that and we continue mission and continue to build upon the things that we learn together, well, then it just compounds the impact that we can have. It's times a hundred thousand million. So that's what I look for. Don't send me a dang application telling me that you, you want to come out because you, you, you want to just challenge yourself. Oh, screw you, man. You can go do some other thing. Go do some other race challenge yourself there well right? i mean yeah if that's all you want to do there's plenty of there's a lot of people that's all they want out of it well there's a lot of ways you can get that out of i mean there's a lot of different things you can do to just challenge yourself but there's not that many things that you can do describe exactly as how laid out that give you the opportunity to do all that and you know it, there, it takes a really special person to seek that out yeah. So you're not going to get very many. Yeah. But you're going to get who you want to be around, who yeah. you need to be around. So yeah, but that's a good point. You know, <clears throat> people ask us, uh, me specifically, you know, hey, did you do that through three of seven if they ask about Baltimore? I'm say, I say, let me explain that. I said, three of seven is the community <clears throat> that we're involved in, and it's a tool by God that enables us to go do this, right? That should be your goal that once you complete the basic course or proving ground or advanced mission, go do that. Right? Yeah. You don't need Chad's permission or Chili's permission to go do. Exactly. Organize it. You give in the tools. Yeah. Let's get to work. Continue mission. Um, and so we want to encourage that and we want to enable that for people. You know, we're happy to lay out the infrastructure for it. Um, but ultimately it comes down to them taking that first step, just like they apply for the basic course. Mm -hmm. And that's awesome. Yeah. So many possibilities. Yeah. I agree, brother. We're just getting started, man. I try to explain that to people. We're just getting started. Look, I was in, I felt like I was in a little lull. I was in a lull the other day, right? Y'all ever have them days where, where you're just in a, never. I, I know you don't, Kevin, <laughs> but I was in a lull, man. I just, it just felt, I just didn't feel like things were going the way they should and you know i just didn't feel a lot of energy and just felt disconnected almost and it was funny chili said well what do you do when you get in those lulls you just keep showing up you just you just even though you're in a lull this was a wednesday 
I was in this spot. Well, I didn't feel like recording a freaking podcast, man. I didn't even have anything I wanted to talk to anybody about. But guess what I did? I sat down in this daggone seat right here, and we had a conversation. Because on Wednesdays, we said we were going to put out a podcast for you. What do you do when you're in that law? You just consistently show up and do the best you can do that day. It doesn't have to be the best thing. It doesn't have to be the best product you ever put out. It doesn't have to be your best performance every single day. Consistency is the one piece of advice that applies across the spectrum of humanity, no matter what the crap it is you're trying to accomplish. The one piece of advice that applies to somebody that's building a multi-million dollar business and running a hundred mile race is consistency. It applies across the board. And it is something that takes a lot of people out. Most people get in a lull. They say, you know what? I'm not going to be able to record a good episode today. I'm just not going to do it. We'll just wait till next week. They freaking... That's the way people's mind works. Anyways, I'm getting on a rant right now. Um, dang, Kevin. How in the world did you make it over here, man? What are you... How'd you get oh, here? How? Kevin, how'd oh, you how? get here, man? <clears throat> Met this guy on the way down. <laughs> Picked me up. I was hitchhiking. <laughs> Tell me about yourself, brother. Um, well, how? I got here because of Hal, like I said. So Hal, <clears throat> Hal and I met... He remembers me from 12 years ago, but I think we officially met maybe uh, eight or so ago. Yeah. Yep. About 2014. Seven, nine. I don't know. Somewhere in there. Is it 2022? <clears throat> That's eight. Don't ask me to do math on here. It's close enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He came down to do some training. I, I owned a gym at the time in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and uh, he came down to do some training with his dad. So we met and stayed in touch a little bit, and then... Uh, when I ended up going where I went in 2018, I reached out to Hal because we were, we were still in connection and uh, his mm-hmm. family's been huge supporters of us. So, so we've stayed real connected over the last four years. That's yeah. awesome, man. So Kevin, Fayetteville. Fayetteville. What were you, what were you doing in they Fayetteville? They say it like that. Though. Okay. Yeah. What were you doing in Fayetteville? Well, um, I say I'm from Fayetteville, from all over, but... I've been there the longest, really. Twelve. I was there twelve years as an adult. Um, so I was in the military at one point, oh five to ten, and then got out and stayed there, and then stayed until I left in twenty eighteen. So okay, yeah. Army, army. What was your MOS in army? Uh, Bravo, eighteen Bravo. Okay. Do they wear green berets? They do. Okay, Roger that. Awesome, man. Um. Dude, Kevin, I feel like you got a lot of stories to tell, man. <laughs> and I'm not a big storyteller, but I can talk. I, I wanna well I wanna get to know more about you, man, because uh, you know, how how reached out to me and we have we could do we could do like four podcasts with this crew right here, because we all have great stories, but Kevin, you're me and how we can get back together. Uh, me and the wizard over here, we can get back together. But <laughs> Kevin, I may not have you in the studio again. So I want to unpack your story, man. Sure. And um, 
Why'd you decide you wanted to be a Green Beret? Yeah, I'll give you a little history, a brief history, because I can talk a lot. Um, well, that's what, the that's podcast. What, that's what a po- <laughs> you, know, you, you, got, don't, you have a length of time, though, right? If you don't talk on a podcast, I promise you the episode will suck. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm going to link everything to um, my purpose in life. So I became a believer when I was nine or 10 years old and um, moved all over the place, not because of the military, but my dad rejoined the, the army when I was 12. So we moved to Fort Benning, Georgia, grew up on Fort Benning for six years and didn't like what I saw out of the military from that side of things. Um, growing up in lower enlisted housing, not very fun. Doesn't bring the, brings a pretty rough crowd. And uh, so it wasn't until my senior year of high school and my brother went, he's, he was a year ahead of me, and he went, uh, he joined the Air Force to be a combat controller. And so started telling me about their pipeline and their training. And so that piece really appealed to me. Um, I didn't know that existed, hadn't studied the military, really just had no care for it mm-hmm. until I heard about the special operations world. So I hung out with my brother's team a few times um, while they were going through training. <clears throat> And the thing that really appealed to me was, and I think it's the same on your side of the water, um, the Navy side. It's not the same for the Army, unfortunately. We have too many of us. But on the Navy side and on the Air Force side, in terms of spec ops, you have, at least what I saw, this is how I define it, but you have guys who have the best training, they have the best mission, they have the best funding, they have the closest tight-knit group of guys, and it creates this environment where as a human being, you have what everyone's looking for, you know, and the, outside of that environment, usually people are missing one of those aspects. Yeah. They're looking for a better career. They're looking for a community. Um, they're looking for purpose. But in those environments, you're the cream of the crop and you have all those pieces. So why do you need God? Hmm. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's what I saw was an environment where these guys had no care in the world for God because they thought they had everything. Um, and unfortunately, that's what it takes. Unfortunately, but fortunately, you know, that's what it takes for everyone realizing their need for Christ is their lack of, mm-hmm. um, not what they have. So, so yeah, so I decided to join, um, really felt I was called to join to kind of be missional to that kind of guy. And long story short, failed the depth perception test at MEPS, found out I needed glasses the next test, but they were downsizing the Air Force, so I couldn't retake it. So, didn't want to do anything else in the Air Force, so heard about this X-ray program where I could come off the street and go into uh, special forces training. So, took that route with the intention of being missional to those kind of guys. No kidding, dude. But wow, I was young, and yeah. I'm not I'm not old now. But um, I was young, <clears throat> and it was. I mean, I had a lot to grow in and a lot to learn. I still do, but. I think God used that time more in my life than maybe I was impactful in others. Although he still used the time, um, he's faithful to himself, but, um, yeah, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to make a career out of it. I didn't believe I was supposed to make a career out of it. Gotcha. Yeah. So I was, I was in five years, man. That is, uh, that's a really interesting, that's really interesting because most dudes that go into a special operations unit go in for, I, not not to be a witness, uh, 
Because there is a huge need in those communities. You described it beautifully, right? Um, there is a huge need for team members in those communities that are believers in Christ. Uh, just to be a light, man. You're with those guys all the time. You, when you yep. get to a team, you're with you don't you don't even you don't have to preach to them. You're with them enough. They're gonna see. They see there's something different about you. But to go in with the perspective that like, <laughs> oh man, I can actually inject myself into this community uh, to be a light to these people while I'm doing a really awesome job and serving my country at the same time. I've really never heard of anybody with that type of perspective going into it before. That's that's awesome, brother. Um, I got to ask you, how how was the the Q course and and the training and what was is is it I don't know a lot about you guys pipeline is was it really was it was it really brutal um was it more technical like what was your experience there yeah i'm sure depending on your listeners <clears throat> there'll be people from different time frames that may have gone through the q course so like i think like most things in the military it's morphed over time and when we were going through it was in the process of changes that were still happening um, so for one being an x-ray, have you heard that pipeline or term or 18 x-ray? My buddy okay. over here has, <clears throat> it's <laughs> just an off the street program. I think they, I think they used it back in Vietnam or something and then they stopped it. And then maybe after nine 11, they really started to ramp it up yeah. realizing they needed more of this kind of soldier for the war that they uh, anticipated. So, so it's, a lot of regular military guys don't like 18 x-rays or this off the street because it brought in young dudes right out of high school even that had no life experience, let alone experience in the military. Yet they're joining guys that maybe have 10, 15 years experience deployments. So those, we, I don't want to say those, we got treated worse, generally speaking, um, throughout the course because of that. Yeah. It's understandable, but at the same time, <clears throat> there was a course at the beginning of the pipeline. Once you, once you went to basic training, infantry school, airborne school, then you went to what's called SOPSI, and it was a school essentially to prepare you for special forces selection. It was a month long, um, and really it was cadre who didn't want to be there mm. and were taking everything out on these kids or young dudes that were coming in saying they wanted to be special forces. So yeah. it was just a place for them to throw you in gig pits and, you know, smoke the crap out of you for 30, 40 days. Um, at the same time you were doing land nav and rucking. And so a lot of those guys, because they got smoked so much, they went to selection and beat all the regular military dudes that were coming to selection. But, okay. um, but yeah, so if you pass that, you go to selection um, then you go to a SOPSI 2, which was like a prep for um, uh, SUT, which is... Um, Small unit tactics. Yeah, man, I have not used these terms in well, a talk long to time. Well, talk to me about the selection. The, the, you, you call it selection. Is that... Yeah. How is that broken down? Like... Yeah. At what least from what Hal said about uh, showing up for... Which course was that you did with them? saying proven ground they said yeah he didn't get any notice whatsoever like you emailed them and they didn't respond <laughs> yeah yeah so it's selections a little bit like that it's um it's ran professionally and they just tell you show up at this time with this in your ruck okay you show up there and they're like follow the cones go you don't know the length 
you don't know the conditions essentially, except that you should go fast because you're being ranked against the rest of the people there that are going as well. Okay. So it's a lot of movement. It's land navigation. Um, there's PT tests, of course, and they're assessing. There's a team week where you have a lot of problem solving, which are sometimes pretty grueling tasks. If you can't figure out how to solve the problem, you could be out there three, five, six hours. Mm. Um, so they test how you work in leadership. They test how you work with the team following orders, especially when things are going south. Um, you do kind of some long written tests, which are evaluations to kind of see, see how track overall, how you perf- would perform or how you would think through processes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you wait, I think at the end you have a, I don't know anymore. So this was, yeah. um, I think this was, Oh, six. Um, you had like a roughly 25 mile ruck at the end. Nobody knew the length, but that was the, the word, um, that it was about that length. And what's the, what's the, on average, what's the success rate there percentage wise? Um, gosh, I don't know exactly to be honest. If you had to, if, if I had from to your guess, experience, yeah. If I had to guess, maybe a maybe a third or something would get wow. selected. So that's like y'all, that's like buds, like the selection is like the the buds first phase for us and buds yeah. probably. You okay. have people, you have people quit throughout that process. Okay. So right? you can drop on requests there. Yeah, you can quit and. At the same time, you can make it through everything and do great in areas, but through psyche valve or tests they can, or team week or something they can assess and say, you're not who we're looking for. Gotcha. Or return later or something like this. Yep. Um, so, of course, then that just enters you into the pipeline. And then the pipeline is, in general is a year and a half for most people, two and a half if you're a medic. Okay. Yep. 18 Delta yep. is the Army medic. Um. So what was driving you through this, man? Like, because you told us the purpose that you had in your mind for for signing up, for submitting, going into this, right? But like, you must have been really passionate about that purpose because I know some of that training, I know it got pretty freaking miserable. Like, did you stick with that purpose? Did that remain the purpose in the forefront of your mind to to be a light to these guys once you got there? Like, was that always in the forefront of your mind? Was that purpose strong enough to drive you through all that, or did that change? Yeah, for sure it wasn't um, at the forefront of my mind all the time. You know, it was, uh, like I said, I was young, immature. In fact, a little more history on myself. My dad kind of got jaded with the church when I was young, so we weren't a part of a church most of my life. And really it was just God's providence that I'd be doing a lot of random things I shouldn't be doing. And in the middle of it would be praying and asking God why and go back and be studying scripture. And um, if you've heard of Voice of the Martyrs before, um, have you heard of them? No, I have not. Okay. Yeah, it's, I've asked numerous groups in the last two days. And nobody's <laughs> heard of them, but Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, you heard of them? No. These are two orgs that um, I know Voice of the Martyrs about 50 years old. I'm not sure Open Doors, but they're two organizations that support the persecuted church around the world. So they'll visit them. They'll tell their, tell their stories. They'll, if they get thrown in prison, you know, against the law, they'll lobby for them mm-hmm. and 
push to get them released and things like this. But they have a monthly newsletter. So I started getting that when I was 10 or 11 years old. And uh, hmm. so it shaped, I told my dad when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a missionary. And it was based on, I think, seeing all these places in the world and thinking, okay, if you're a missionary, you have to go where persecution is or where it's really hard. Um, so I had this, th- that God used that time and that in shaping me um, with a heart to serve in missions, with a heart to be in ministry full time, with a heart to serve in that capacity. But realizing through scripture when I was a teenager, okay, I don't have to be in some hard place overseas for that to be, to, for, me, for me to live on mission. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be a pastor, worship leader, youth leader in order to be full time in ministry, yeah. ministry of reconciliation we all have as believers. So, so that's what ended up morphing into seeing this need and really feeling like two, two things. Like I said, I was young and I think this, it's not a bad thing, but it is a temptation that especially in America we can have because we have a lot of freedom, but you see something you're drawn towards, you like you're wired for and you want to do it. And then you're like, how do I inject God into that? Mm -hmm. So there was the mix. I saw the need from a mission standpoint, but I really loved what I saw from a training standpoint. Gotcha and talked to some people that were mentoring me when I was young and they're like, hey, go for it. Yeah. So yeah, you had both hands. How was that received by your classmates and stuff? I mean, were you, were you open about your faith and, and, and such through training? I was, but it wasn't a lead in. Yeah. Again, because coming in in that path as an x-ray, um, most of the time and people you're going through the course with, a lot of them are not x-rays and the cadre are, so I'm not saying you can't be open about your faith, but my point is I was also there to learn. I was there to, yeah. I was there to, in a sense, prove myself in order to be able to get to the place where I wanted to be missional. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Totally, man. Um, I get asked this question a lot. Did the level of violence conflict with your, with your faith? Like the, 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 the requirement of, of, uh, putting yourself or becoming this, this essentially warrior. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you understand pretty quickly that you're actually, your entire life revolves around, uh, learning how to effectively kill the enemy. Mm -hmm. Was that ever a conflict for you early Uh, on or no, no, it wasn't. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a difference between killing and murdering for sure. So Agreed. I believe it can be an issue and many soldiers, it is an issue. Yeah. They're, they're not fighting out of a sense of duty and sometimes even camaraderie, but more out of hatred or anger. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I agree, man. Um, mm-hmm. Bravo's a weapons guy. Yeah. Don't ask me about many weapons right now. It's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I was like, I was the weapon. It was weird because so you get to choose kind of your preferences when you go through selection. Like, what would I prefer to be? You kind of, I would like to be this MOS and I'd like to have this language. And I chose Bravo because I thought weapons would be cool, although I wasn't thinking practically what would give me a skill for down the road. Um, And then I chose Spanish because uh, my brother was at Herbert Field in Florida and, and the group I was in at the time was at Bragg, but in 2008 was supposed to move down there to Herbert Field. So I thought, okay, if I get that group, I'll be stationed down by my brother. Nothing's ever on time in the military. So by the time I got out, they still hadn't, they hadn't moved locations. But long story short, like I got pretty good test scores 
which generally if you get have a higher test score on your ASVAB, you're going to get a harder MOS. Yeah. But I got given Bravo. If you get a good score on your language test, you're going to get Arabic or Mandarin or a yeah. hard language. I got Spanish. I was like, then you have dudes who get horrible scores and they get given Arabic. I'm like, I don't understand, but how the process works. So got yeah. some military, man. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move forward to your time in the teams, your active duty time at the team. What'd you, what'd you get into? What I get into in terms of deployments, uh, you know, uh, uh, how, how were you, how were you able to, to accomp to, were you able to, to essentially fulfill your purpose there that you thought you were there for? I mean, what was that like for you? Your yeah. time in the teams? I yeah, like to I, ask very broad, general questions. You got to ask specific people sh see, shape it. Yeah. yeah. If, if Chili was asking these questions, he would be like, all right, what was your first deployment? Like no, no what, it'd be what more was your first meal what, when what, you went. No, no. Yeah, exactly. It'd be more precise than that because you want to know why? Because then they know what to answer. No, I just want to hear about your time in the teams, man. Jeez, it it was. I enjoyed my time on the team. It was. I'd say the first year plus was a little rough for me, not knowing how to operate and getting ingrained in. Shut your mouth. You don't know anything. Do your job. You know. So to kind of owning that when I got there, which at the time with who I was as a person and maturity as a human being just made me more quiet in general. But, but team time was great. Um, I really enjoyed the guys and I think we bonded pretty well. Um, I got to a battalion. So at that time, the way it worked, each group had three battalions. They were standing, trying to stand up, start standing up a fourth battalion for each group. <clears throat> and, so when there were three, two battalions were rotating to Afghanistan pretty much. And then the, the other battalion was in the AO that that group was responsible for normally. So seventh group was responsible for central South America. I got sent to a battalion that had just was about to get back from its second rotation in the road to Afghanistan, meaning they were about to be on a break and then they would take over central South America AO, Okay, which wasn't what I preferred, but <clears throat> That's just the way it worked out. So, so yeah, I ended up in uh, ended up in Honduras um, on a trip, and then ended up in Afghanistan for a stint, and uh, and then I knew it was time to get out. So yeah, yeah, I didn't want to I didn't want to resign. Um, it was a little immature of me, but I, at the same time, I thought I really don't want to raise a family in the military. I've seen how it's done by many people in it, mm -hmm. and knowing myself, so knowing myself, I I wouldn't <clears> have wanted to stay there. I mm -hmm. wanted to move on to higher levels in the spec ops world. <clears throat> it's hard for me to sit still and accept where I am. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. Um, I think the equalizer for that for me has been serving the Lord because there's, you just are where you are. There's no option to be like, well, I want to hurry up and yeah. take a jump and go to a selection. Like, there is none. Your yeah. selections, your life and actually being more humble and lowering yourself. So, well, I, I say Chili has a question over here. You keep, you've mentioned it several times, and I'm curious when you say your level of almost immaturity throughout some of this process. But mm -hmm. I don't know. It's interesting to me that you say that um, because to me, you had such a a worthy mission and purpose at a young age, or or, or just period. You you had, and I, I'm just curious. 
what you mean by that. I guess just the stage of life you are in in other ways. Mm. Is that what you mean? I mean, no, just immature. I think as a person, there were parts of my personality that had never been formed the way they needed to be, to be effective in the way I wanted to be effective with these guys. Uh, that's what I was going to ask. Do yeah. you think it hindered what you were trying to do a little bit? It did, but at the same time, God was sovereign through it. Yeah, yeah. you were used. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I might have been used how I would like to have been used, or if I look back and say, wow, if I was in now, it'd be way different. But at the same time, he was doing things in me too. That yeah. I didn't know I was there for. So, mm-hmm. yeah. His plan, not yours. There you go. So, yeah. yeah. So, Honduras, were you guys doing FID? Yeah, training their their guys. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And um, how was your experience in Afghanistan? It was good. Um, I think like most people that are in, uh, maybe not most, but at least in that side, in the spec ops world, I mean, mm-hmm. I enjoyed deployments. I enjoyed Honduras and Afghanistan for their purposes. Um, lost a teammate first month. Um, even that part showed me an immaturity myself. Like I could just swallow it and not deal with it. Yeah. Um, so, and we had this talk last night actually about what's real masculinity and what's toxic, not toxic, but just this machismo mm-hmm. um, that gets pushed and actually how that gets in the way of um, being spiritually mature. But um, yeah, so it was, it was good. It was a, it was a solid deployment. I mean, it's not how this was in 09. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not how things would have been even a year prior, two years prior, three yeah. years prior. But yeah, it was a solid trip. That's awesome, man. And you said you essentially, a big a big reason you decided to get out was because of family, right? Or, or I mean, that influenced yeah. you. What At what point did you get married? Were you married when you went in? Um, no, I got married in 2009, a month before I deployed. Okay. Okay. Big shift then. And so you come back from that, you come back from that. Well, you have a, you have, you're all of a sudden responsible for a relationship, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I guess in that way. Um, I agree with you, man. The teams destroy marriages traditionally. I think there was about an 80 something percent divorce rate in the SEAL teams when I was in. So it's, it's high. I mean, I can't remember the third thing, but there were three things that basically it was a running joke that every Green Beret had, which was a divorce, a Harley, and I can't remember the third at this point, but yeah. 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 It was it was the norm. And um so you you decided to get out after you get back from that deployment to Afghanistan. Yep. What was your what was your did you have an idea in your head for what your next mission was going to be? I didn't, not from, I'd say not from a gospel missional standpoint, but at the time um, I was already competing in CrossFit and working in a local CrossFit gym on the side. Mm -hmm. And so when I got out, I just ran with that for a bit. Um, And again, this is one of those, another one of those examples, but doing something that I enjoyed, doing something that I was good at and liked and praying God would use it. And he's faithful and he does. Um, but 
part of my story is realizing like that's not what God's calling of us. That's not what he's asking us for. Um, in many, I believe in many cases, he's asking us to lay down the things we like and enjoy. Mm. And he may actually call us into something we don't think we'd like and enjoy. And then out of that, we find it's really how we're wired or what we're wired for. Come on, man. Mm. Yeah. That is so true, dude. Yeah. I would almost go as far as to say Christ will probably never call you into doing something that you are comfortable with or that you just are totally <clears throat> just enamored with or like that's all that's almost the most dangerous place that you can be as as a Christian, right? Um yeah. I relate to that big time. Well, I relate to it because I'm I'm pretty, you know, you're square in the middle of it. I am. Yeah. Or, I mean, hopefully coming out of it, whatever. I mean, you know, my life has revolved around running. And, you know, it's like instead of instead of asking God to use me how he sees fit, I would, you know, it's basically like asking, use me, allow me to use running to impact people. You know, mm -hmm. it's my demands. Not, not submission, you know, so that's, yeah, and I think, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. I mean, it's, it can't be what you, I mean, it, I guess you could, you could end up being called to do something that you, it could be running or it could be whatever you like, but just because you like it don't mean it's going to fit into that. Absolutely not. And it it's <clears throat> even according to Christ and according to, scripture in general, it's not about the thing itself. It's always about the heart. Right. So he knows the heart and we don't even know the depths of our own, but mm. I think a lot of times we take a look in, we see it like, well, that's so I important really too. like this, you know, I really want to do this thing. God, can you just like, that's so important. Please use it, please. You know? <clears throat> yeah. So, and that was the point it came to eventually. So I competed in CrossFit for a handful of years, did pretty well. Um, owned a gym that went really well. And then ended up in the gym. So I started a gym on a whim. <clears throat> I worked at a gym and I was the head coach. And then it, it started out as a climbing gym. The, the owner was a rock climber, not a business owner by understanding. Yeah. And decided to expand to CrossFit and MMA and do all three. And long story short, this was the day before I was leaving for Christmas vacation and she brought me in, showed me the books and was like, we've lost 50% of our income the last six months. And I was basically the only person who needed paid. A lot of the coaches were part-time or in the military or something. She's like, we got to let you go. So long story short, I had looked at a space in town, a building that day with what ended up being my business partner. And randomly, we just said, what if we ever wanted to start a gym? Like just as a whim. What if we ever wanted to? What does real estate look like? Never looked at any buildings. Like, how do you even find a space that would work for such a thing? <clears throat> so we went and looked at a space, saw a shell that had room to expand. We're like, okay, that's kind of cool. There are like opportunities, even in the downtown area where we lived. Went back to work, worked out, got brought in, laid off. Mm. And I wanted to be upset, but something inside me got excited. Walked out the door, picked up the phone, mm. called and was like, we're starting the gym. So three months later, we were open. And so even in that process, like I didn't submit that to God. I 
grabbed the bull by the horns and then through the process was like, God, please use this. You know, please use this. He was faithful. He did. We held Bible studies. People came to faith. We were part of a church plant that outgrew the guy's house, moved into our gym, which my, my business owner wasn't a believer. But because I told him we were going to be closed on Sundays and it wasn't being used, and I was like, well, the church will pay a little rent if they're going to come on Sundays. He was like, okay, cool. So then it really intertwined the church and the gym, which was cool because I saw people that, that needed fitness getting pulled in from the church and by that and building relationships, pulling people into relationship in the church and they needed that, the, the spiritual side. So, um, so he used it in a bunch of ways, but I get bored pretty easy with things that are not related to the gospel. Um, so I worked myself out of a job in the gym <clears throat> and decided to go back to school with my GI bill. Went, I was like, what am I going to go to school for? Uh, went back to school for exercise science and when I started taking classes, I was like, I'm going back to school for a degree that I own a successful business in. I was like, I don't know what in the world am I doing? Yeah. This makes no sense. So kind of just going through the motions, just finding something to do. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm good at it. I have access to it. Praying God uses it. Right. Yeah. And so when I get bored, I would remember when I was a teenager, I strongly believe. And I told my dad, I'm going to be a missionary. Like this is and I, I used good theology and then things I liked and um, opportunities to stray from a very simple faith I had um, from that knowledge when I was young. Hmm. And so I, I started to seek the Lord. <clears throat> this was late 2014 and say, like, whatever you want from me, that's what I want to do. Um, and really genuinely from my heart, like, I don't care what it is. And so the more I did that, he open opportunities at first for me to possibly work with a mentor of mine in Northern Africa in Libya specifically. So that got me started studying the region, mm. what was happening in the Middle East. I hadn't paid attention at all. Arab spring, mm. um, I had a little bit, um, refugee crisis with ISIS and things, but studying that and, and looking into all those things led to, from a Christian standpoint, looking into like what's going on there from a spiritual standpoint and seeing many Muslims are coming to faith like never before. And I wasn't expecting to see such a thing. I wasn't, I mean, I was looking in just to like start research, like God led me to this area. Okay, let me just start figuring out what's going on. <clears throat> so started studying the region and became convinced over time, like, okay, this is where I'm going to end up. Um, and I didn't know exactly what for. Um, so in 2016, I really believe God said, sell the business and don't get a job. And my wife doesn't work, didn't work at the time, and we had her second kid on the way. I was like, that doesn't really make sense. Um, I mean, practically, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. <clears throat> but did it, sold the gym, and didn't get a job. Did some odd and ends here and there. Took out half our IRA um, to live off of. But that time, God used because I had extra time and I wasn't trying to make something better and spend all my time, you know, mm. improving something, growing something. Yeah. <clears throat> it gave me the space, I think, that I needed to mature in the depth of my faith with him for him to show me further what he was going to actually use me for. So <clears throat> um, then I had an opportunity to go to northern Iraq in uh, May of 17 with two elders from my church. So the church I was a part of, 
they were going to go over and vet a missions org to see if it was an organization they wanted to partner with. <coughs> Sorry, I got a cough from this workout this morning, man. <laughs> Always happens. Always happens. If I if I breathe that hard, which I try not to anymore. But. I heard that, brother. <coughs> um, so we were going to vet a missions org, see if it was an organization we wanted to partner with as a church. I was, I'd been praying for a year at that point. I just want opportunity to go to that part of the world not in a military context and see what's going on. Yeah. And so I was just happy to be there, but long story short, it turned into God showing me, this is actually the place you need to come and you're already ready. Like I didn't have anything to do except sell my house. <clears throat> so, well, let's, Hey, hold up just a second, Kevin. Yeah, sure. Because I, I want to hear, I want to hear what happened. On that first trip to Iraq, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. like what, what that, what, what was it? How, how did God show you that? How did it click in your mind? Like, what was it that prompted that? Because that's a huge commitment. That's a huge step, and that's yeah. a dangerous place to be. So, um, I want to hear about that. We're gonna hear about that in just a second. I want to take a quick pee break, grab a bottle of hoist, and we're gonna get back after it. What were you saying, Kevin? Right there. I was saying when I was 18, my family moved. My dad was in the army, moved to the NATO base in Belgium. <clears throat> so I was on my own in college and making all my own decisions, living life. And then in the military, the job was figure it out, spec ops, you know, make it happen. And specifically, which I can tie this in later, but <clears throat> our, our mission as a Green Beret directly correlates to what I believe is the proper and effective way a missionary should work mm. um, by, with, and through the locals, not coming in and putting our stamp on it. Um, so even those correlations come like when I was in, when we were going to deploy to Honduras, I had studied Spanish for three months, I think two years prior and then not used it once. And then we were going to deploy Split team ops, one half the team's going to Belize, our half is going to Honduras. So my seniors in Belize, I'm running the show. Like I'm training all their dudes in Spanish. I was like, yeah. uh <laughs> take a few day refresher and go down there and just start fumbling all over the place. Um but it was that in a way like I'm wired to do that. Step into an environment, create, make stuff happen, um, of sorts. That's the and fun part. It's a fun part if you're wired that way. It's yeah. not if you're not. It's it's obviously very stressful and can cause a lot of issues. But, you know, there's correlations to that in in terms of ministry and church planting. Generally, it's, we call it more apostolic, but to go in and start afresh or start anew. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, maybe not stay and remain there for your life. Yep. Um, yep. But I, Dang, I love that, man. Off. Oh, we left off. I want to hear. I wanted to hear, dude. You you just sold your business. You're 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 trying to figure out what's going to be next. You have the opportunity to take this trip to Iraq to vet a a missions or, or an organization there to see if you want to partner. The church wants to partner with that organization, and so obviously something happened. Like you said, yep. when you were there. You had this realization that okay, yep. What like, let me know what happened on that trip, man. <clears throat> I would say two things happened, two big things. Um, 
One, I was already convinced we would end up in this part of the world. Two, I was already convinced it would be to plant house churches before I went. Okay. So on that trip, um, I was expecting to help vet this missions org, but what happened, I don't remember, day two was the guys that ran the org that were there started to talk to me about what would it look like for you to join us. <clears throat> so I'm, this is part of my flesh. There's a, there's a positive to this, but there's a negative to it, which is since I was young, I've been anti-authority, anti-tradition, anti-whatever the common thing is. That's not me. Hmm. Um, to the point where like I'd be in the military and walk by officers. I don't salute them. Like, yeah, you're a butter bar. What am I, what am I saluting you for? Arrogance. But <clears throat> so there's, there can be positives that come out of that in order to see things that need to be seen. But the negative side obviously is a lot of pride for, um, no reason. So why was I saying that? <laughs> the missions group. Uh, that there you go. Vetting. Yeah. So I started asking a bunch of questions that from my standpoint, I was like, I have no experience to ask these questions. These guys have been in ministry and foreign missions, even 20 and 30 years. The guy now were they, to. were they, were they American, Iraqi? They're Americans. Okay. They're, they have some people on the ground there, but they're working in different parts of the world. They've been doing different things in ministry their whole life. <clears throat> I've done nothing. I mean, I can't say I've done nothing. I've been part of a local church, led community groups and small groups and et cetera. But nothing when it comes to foreign missions. So I'm asking these questions that I kind of expected. I'm going to get answers that are going to throw up red flags. And I'm going to be like, okay, there we go. It's not, that's what I thought. I wasn't supposed to join y'all. Mm -hmm. But at least what I saw on the surface was, and through, I don't want to say surface, through long conversations was guys who were like, when I had questions that were concerns based on things I'd studied about house church planting in different contexts and things going on, they admitted, yeah, yeah, these are issues for us. Like, we don't have all the answers. Come help us figure it out. Hmm. <clears throat> so that was kind of the general vibe I got, which was a positive because just from my background, like, I don't fit well if put in a box. And a lot of ministries, missions, orgs, it's a pre-packaged box for you to step into how you'll do ministry, where you'll do ministry, when you'll do ministry, how you'll take breaks, etc. Um, so this was a different mentality and it fit me. Mm -hmm. So one, God used that to show me, Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess I am wired and fit. And even in hindsight, looking back at time in the military and time in owning a business and starting to see how they would weave into missions yeah. in a way that I wouldn't have anticipated. Um, and the second thing was I'd studied the region, so it's Kurdistan, the northern region of Iraq, which is, if you're not familiar, it's much different than the rest of Iraq. Um, we've been allies with them for 30 plus years, bad allies at times, good allies at others. But um, so they're very, not just favorable, they love Americans. And there's a positive to that in that my wife historically has never been on the same page in terms of kind of spiritual maturity, in terms of pursuing the Lord. Um, it's, there's been a struggle with that, but at the same time, I knew like, we're not going to just, we're not going to go to Syria. We're not going to go to impoverished area of India or something like my wife wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah. So being there and seeing how open it was to be there as an American and actually they've, 
uh, they have their own military, but they have good intelligence and there's a lot of foreigners there as a result. So I could see like this is a great launching point and that tied in with how strategic the area is. So our government knows this is a strategic area, um, but from a, a gospel standpoint, where we live is three hour, a three-hour drive from Syria, Turkey, Iran, and the rest of Iraq. Like, yep. Same distance to all of them. So we can impact a lot of people from a lot of places and even go into a lot of places without actually living there. Figuring out To figure out how to live in one of those places and exist and not get kicked out is difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a very strategic place. Yeah. So it was a combination of those things that was like, this is the right place to go. And actually we're already poised to go. Mm. The difficult part was came back and this is my favorite. Part. Okay. I'll tell it. <laughs> tell how Lex is telling it. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> this is my favorite part. I, like well, I wasn't going to tell the story, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. So came back. Um, I feel like I've been back a handful of days. I didn't want to tell my wife until I was like, I'm a hundred percent, you know? And so she, she was on the phone with her mom one day and she looks over at me in the middle of her conversation and she winks at me and she's like, kind of like, watch this. And just so you know, like I'm the bad guy. I took her daughter away. Like her mom doesn't like a lot of things about me. <clears throat> and so she winks at me and she's like, yeah, so, so he thinks uh, God might be uh, calling us to move over there, you know? And she's kind of like smiling. And I'm like, like, stop that, you know? <laughs> And I was saying stop that because her I know her mom. She took that as, oh, he he is. Like mm -hmm. and I hadn't said anything. So of course she got off the phone and conversation ensued. It's like, <laughs> well, uh, yes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so she was not on board. She was like, I don't want to move to Iraq. Um, which from a normal human perspective, I, I understand. You can't blame her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could have said, I mean technically I don't want to move to Iraq either, but I do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, and there was nothing I could do, obviously, like in terms of changing her mind or her heart. Yeah. So the only thing I could think of was hope that God speaks to her and try to create the space where she's in a place where God can speak to her. So she didn't even want to pray cause she doesn't want to, feel or hear or be led to believe that we are supposed to go. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'll take the kids. We had a little man cave out back, go out to the man cave. And I'm just like, I'm praying for her while she's out there, just hoping that she's going to pursue the Lord. And so a month later she came to me and said, we're supposed to move to rock. Um, hmm. Yeah. Dang it, man. Yep. <laughs> so he makes it happen. He does. Yeah, that <laughs> <laughs> I'm I think I'm short circuiting just because you you can't wrap your head around how how those things come together. I mean, it's just that's wild, man. I I, I wondered what what were so you had one child at this point? At that point? Uh no, we had two. You had two at that point. Okay. Yeah. yeah. At that point my son was not even one, and my daughter was four. So how was that for them? I mean, obviously, they didn't have a choice in, in the matter, but I guess one and four, I mean, a one-year-old doesn't really know what's going on, I guess, but a four-year-old, you know, that's they kind of get uprooted. 
I mean, what what was? I don't know. I'm just curious. What is? Was that difficult for them? It wasn't, and I've I've reflected on that even now. Like we just came back. This is the second time my family's been back. I've been back a bunch of times for ministry, um, needing work done here. But they came back in 2020, and then they just came back with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, maybe five weeks ago, and they're excited to come back. They want to see their cousins, but Mm -hmm. I look at them even then, like when we moved, my son was 16 months and he's pushing his, he's pushing a carry on through the um, airports and he's on there, get on the plane with very little sleep and he's not going crazy. And when my daughter was only eight months, like we went to a new year's party, stayed up till one o'clock with her. She wasn't crying. We were like, okay, like, we can do whatever we want. Yeah. You know, we didn't, but we, we had freedom with the way our children acted when they were young. But I think this is true for most children. We just, in America, we've taken comfort, safety, and turned that into softness mm-hmm. and then the lack of resiliency. And then we just assume our kids will be that way. Like, we'll I have to make everything nice, neat, packaged, organized. Cause, cause my kid like, blah, blah, blah. And like, no, God, if God called you to do something, you go, your child will adapt. They're a child. Like, yeah, they'll grow They're, They'll change. They'll morph. In fact, it'll shape them probably to be better than if you just put them in this nice. Well, they've got life, life so. experiences that can't be bought. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, it's, it's almost like just a huge acceleration into their development mm-hmm. do, doing that. Mm hmm. That, that nobody else gets. Well, it reminds me of uh, it reminds me of a certain part of of my testimony when when I got when I was medically retired from the teams and and I had a, a little time there where where I was lost, man. I was I was contracting, wasn't happy, had no clue what the rest of my life was going to look like. Um, I bought a lawnmower and I started cutting grass and like. Just like I was lost, dude. Like, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, none of it was giving me any fulfillment. There was no mission behind it. It was just me trying to find something that I wanted to do, right? And so then basically I was laying in bed one night, had this vision, if you want to call it. And some of you guys have heard about that where essentially the the, the premise of it without going through the whole thing is Christ was showing me everything that I had done in my life and um, basically telling me to that I had to turn loose of all of that in order to to go move forward into what he has for me, which became three a seven project. Uh, but I remember during that I was literally uh, was literally arguing with the Holy Spirit in my mind, like telling him no, no, no. Then when I finally submitted, my next question is, well, what about my wife? What about my wife? Because uh, Brooke and I are, are not at the same place in terms of faith, right? We were comfortable where we were at. We had a 10-acre farm. We had everything that we had ever really wanted right there in Virginia, uh, Suffolk. And so then, then the very next part, I believe it was the Holy Spirit says, I will care for her just as I have cared for you. So like you talking about, well, you, you have to have faith. And, and Christ will, if he's calling you into something, your children, obviously your children are involved, your wife are involved. 
He had he's not Christ is not just calling you. He knows they're coming with you and he will care for them just as he will care for you. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's hard to come to that conclusion sometimes. Sure. Um what, what would happen if you came home and uh told Brooke, "Hey, we're moving to Iraq." Um well, I guess it depends on what day it was. <laughs> Brooke might say, "Oh heck yeah, man, let's go." Um, yeah, uh, of course. But now, children involved—it's a—it's a—it it's a, takes a whole other level of dependence on Christ, in my opinion, right? Because we're two adults. Children involved—it's a whole other level of dependence. Um. All right, so. I have to understand what this felt like for you, by the way. You, you, are, you are so convinced that this is where you are being called to operate within the body of Christ, this place. Uh, but it's huge. It's a, it's a, it's a huge m- movement. Like, wh- where was your heart like, did this, did it feel like, I'm trying to understand what you felt like. Was, did it feel like this unshakable burden that you had to do this? Was, was there excitement involved? Like, how are you so sure? Where was your heart at? Yeah. Um, so traditionally, also part of the talk we had with this kind of, uh, I don't want to say false, false, um, masculinity, but in part it is, it's, you know, there should be a lack of emotion. So I've had that in me since I was young. It's something the Lord has really worked in me on. Um, but kind of to just take feelings and be like, shove them aside. I I know this is the mission or this is what I need to do. I can get rid of how I'm feeling in order to just do that. Um, so there was some of that meaning I could sit there, and this is true for any situation. I can sit there and what if, and out of what ifs, emotions can spin up, right? I can say, well, what if this happens? Or what if it's like this? Or are my kids going to be in danger? Are they going to have a good life? I I could what if all the Mm -hmm. situations, and out of those, of course, my emotions will be aroused to whatever direction I start to feel the situation could what if itself into. Um, But taking it at face value, like, is, is God leading me to this? Yeah, didn't I pray wasn't I sincere? I know I was sincere, even though I don't know the depths of my heart. I really want to do whatever he wants. And he led me to this point. Okay. So am I going to say, eh, maybe not. Maybe it's something else, you know? Let me go back and try again, you know? Mm-hmm. Second round. Like, no. Uh, it's, I believe it's part of the simplicity of faith. Um, and that even in doing so, out of the right heart, God will direct it. He did it when I did it for things I liked. Like, I'm just to start a gym. Will you use it? Yeah, I'll use it. Like, yeah. You want to be you want to be used. Of course I'm I'm going to use you. And even if you don't want to be used, I'll use you and you just won't know it, you hmm. know, in some mm-hmm. capacity. But um or like we can talk about at some point and if you want to, but or even through the wickedness and the evil, I'm going to use that and accomplish my purposes. Mm-hmm. Um So yeah, I it's not that I was feeling nothing. I think I was the hardest I think the most I felt was kind of at one point, not agony, I was really struggling. I was wrestling inside during that month when my wife had said, 
she wasn't willing to go. It's like, I've been seeking the Lord for years and he's made it clear. Mm -hmm. So what if she doesn't want to in a year or two years? What do I do? Practically, like, what do I do if the Lord said, this is what you're being called to, but my wife doesn't want to go. What do I do? What's, where does my ultimate faithfulness lie? How does that play itself out in the implications of marriage? You know, so I, I was thinking these things and it was really rough thinking through them, even though it was a short period of time. So I'm really thankful that the Lord showed her as soon as, as soon as he did, because it could have been a rough year. But, um, so once, I think once she said yes, um, it, my mindset immediately switched into mission mode. Okay. Like, it's on. So what do we yeah. have to do? We have to prep the house to sell. We need to raise support. And then seven months later, we moved. I, I, and I asked that question because there are going to be people that listen to this show. And, and there are people that ask me all the time, well, how do I know, how, how can I be sure that this is what God has called me to do, right? Because you, you, we've, we've made mention of that mm-hmm. many times in this podcast. And people are, are always confused in their own mind about, well, what, how am I sure that this is it, Right. And mm-hmm. it sounds like for you, it, I think you explained it beautifully. You you went back and you searched your own heart in a very logical way and said, in seeking, in seeking what is next, was I was I completely submitted? Was I sincere in that time of seeking? And okay, yes, I I feel like I, I feel like I was as sincere as I can be in seeking what God has for my life, and this is what He has led me to. All right. Well, that's a great way. That's a great way to make an assessment of like, okay, this, okay. Well, this is it, right? Well, that's it. Yeah, I think that is the process. But correct me if I'm wrong. When you take a step based in faith, you're not sure that that you don't know that it's right. I mean, that that that's the whole question that they're asking is, well, how do you know this, or how are you sure? Well, you're not. That, that that's that's kind of the point but you you have faith that it is and 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 it's be, you have that faith because of that process that you just went through because yeah. you were being called i mean i don't think you you're sure in the sense i think you feel a level of peace yeah right there yeah. can still be some chaos to it but the more i try to control those things in my life the more stress and less peace i feel in any situation when god's in control the more peace i feel and I can feel the Holy Spirit lead, right? It may be dangerous. It may be a lot of unknowns, what ifs. Mm-hmm. But that level of peace is there. It's almost, I can almost cut it, right? It's yeah. it's so tangible in my life when I just give that control to God, um, even with that unknown. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that's how I usually answer that question because uh, that's a tough question to answer. Yeah. You know, you don't want to give bad advice there and send somebody off, but you got to seek the Holy Spirit. You got to seek God let it lead and you'll know mm-hmm. when it leads. Mm-hmm. I, and I love the way Kevin put it too, that it ha if you are seeking Christ, it, it has, you have to come to him submitted. Like there, there's just like, you have to, you, you have to come to him com- as submitted and sincere as you can possibly be. That's like the pre-qualifying uh, the posture of the heart, 
surrender yeah if you are seeking what what it is that god actually has for you that was the pre-qualifier for me to to do what i'm doing now in, in 307 project if you come to him that way and then you take the bull by the horns as those opportunities come just like kevin did i have to keep looking at your name here just like kevin did um i'm gonna start referring to myself as right? kevin after this podcast <laughs> yeah you're forever kevin um Right? So that was the process for me, coming completely submitted, and then as opportunities present themselves, taking taking advantage of those and doing the work, right? But ultimately, ultimately for me getting to the point that I am now, I don't even know how it happened. Other than I was seeking Christ from a, a place of submission, and now I'm here, and everything in between... I, I can't even explain how it how it has happened this way. The only way I can explain it to you is every day I've woke up and I've said, "Oh well, here's this thing. I should I should probably do the work to make this happen, or or I, I should I should probably seize this opportunity, or I should probably uh, create this because I see a need for it." But it's it's been wild, man. But in, oh, I'm sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead I was gonna say you're you're walking that step of faith out of obedience as opposed to so focused on the result. Yeah. I, I have no result in mind. I, I don't. I mean, I, I see yeah. the result. I see, I see results, but I, but they weren't because it was. It, it's not from. It's not the fruits of some plan that I carried out perfectly. They just freaking happened, man. I know it's crazy. You guys listen to this thing. I'm crazy. I'm. It's the only way I can describe it, man. Mm. Um, there's <clears throat> with something you said. Um the word calling gets thrown around a lot in the church world, Christian world. And it's confusing because we can look at specific examples in scripture of very tangible calling. Like God spoke through a prophet, through his voice, through a bush, whatever he spoke. He led someone through a vision, a dream led Peter to go to Cornelius. Like he called and it was very explicit. We're like, okay, that's a calling. But then how do I know I'm called? Like God didn't say it like that. Yeah. He didn't do it in this example. <clears throat> but there's two dangers of that. So one is like, well, I just, I guess I never know. Or it's, I can just call anything that I like mm-hmm. calling. And then oh, people yeah. can't say anything. Yeah. What, what do you say to someone? They say, God called me. And you're like, okay, yeah, bless you, brother. Like, so... But I think calling, for sure, there are like specific callings, you know, that God's really wants, like we like we see in scripture, you have specific people that God used in a very specific way at a specific time to change the trajectory of things. But outside of that, we all have the same calling. Like every mm-hmm. single Christian has the same exact calling. It's no different. Mm-hmm. The difference is just simply my role in it, but the calling is the exactly the same. And we all it's, I mean, in the book you're talking about, even that's sitting next to you, but he made it explicit. He, he Jesus made it explicit. Like I'm calling you. If you want to be a follower of me to go <laughs> and make disciples, if you don't, don't call yourself my disciple because you're not. So you have the calling already. So then the question becomes, how do I know I'm called? Does it align with his calling on your life? Does it align with being a part of him redeeming mm. humanity through making disciples? If not, love that man. He's well, not going to say, "Yeah, go, uh, go do this random thing for fun." Like, 
if your heart behind it is his calling on the church, but it is something very specific, I mean, he'll make, I think he'll make it clear, you know? Yeah. Well, another thing too, is I think we use those examples. This is just my opinion that we use those examples in scripture of going, man, look how clear cut that was. I wish I could have something that clear cut. I don't know that that was that clear cut for some of those examples that you named. They may have been wrestling with that just like you are. It just doesn't really go into that process. I, I, you know, I mean, I don't know that it was clear cut for them any more than it was for you. Y- yeah. You just, you're just assuming that they were just like, Oh yeah, this is easy. I, I kind of doubt it was easy for them Yeah, to understand exactly what they were being called and then to go execute it. So no, I don't know that it's any different. Yeah, because they were just humans too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look at Jonah. Checker wound up in the <laughs> belly of a whale, son. How could it yeah, have been I, any clearer yeah. to him? I bet I mean the specifics are like, it was evident what God called him to because he named it. That's the issue. And with we want to be, na- yeah, we it's want like, it to be. Well, tell me, am I supposed to like start this business or not? Like, you know, <laughs> or am I supposed to go to this place or not? You know, he, you told Jonah, go to Nineveh. Like that was clear. Yeah, know? yeah. You told Moses, Go to, go to Pharaoh and tell him let the people go, you know? Well, it was clear, but then, of course, all the stuff that comes with it is but what unclear. if it, How's it going to happen? Just follow me. I mean, what if it's clear to people, though, we just don't know how to discern it? I mean, I don't know. It just I, I, I think about those examples, too, and it's like, what did that look like if you were there? Did it look just like our processes are here? We just think it's so different, or was it the same, but we are receiving it different or we mm-hmm. or we we are muddling the waters muddying the waters and well we also you have to take into consideration we have something that none of the people none of the the the, the heroes of the faith had we have scripture we have god's word spell we have all that yeah written to us jesus Christ wrote us a book that tells us the foundation of the calling of everybody within the body of Christ, right? So we have that. You have to take that in consideration. Maybe he had to be more specific with others. Um, Anyways, I want to get into your time. You, You guys made the move. You get integrated. You get plugged in. You, I want to. I want to go through what your experience has been in the work you have been doing for the last now how many years? Uh, four. For the last four years, yeah. And um, again, I'm asking a generalized question because I know there are things that that <clears throat> you know what's going to be most impactful, and you know what you can and can't talk about. So I want you to talk to us because I'm interested and what you have been doing. So I'll, because you're giving free reign, I'll talk about the ministry I'm a part of, what it's doing, what its vision is, and um, why that's important right now with what's happening in history. And I'll kind of talk broad like that. And then maybe some of like, okay, well then how does an American fit into that? Yeah. Yeah. But outside of that, you can just ask whatever questions you want because I can, I mean, if you want about culture and living there and like you said, integration, like I can talk about all those things, but I think the bigger pieces that may be helpful for people listening are understanding 
what most people in America need to understand about a Muslim, Islam, mm. the Middle East, being an image bearer of God in his heart and what he's doing. There you go. Um, so a big, like I said before, a big thing that God used to draw me there was studying what was happening, but at the same time, what he was doing. So the last 30 years, I would say, a lot more Muslims began to slowly to come to faith. The last 20 years, that was ramped up, but especially since the Arab Spring, it's been many people coming to faith. And even something unique, whole families coming to faith. Um, like you would see in the book of Acts, like and their whole household. You're like, hmm, that doesn't happen. It does. It's happening. Why is it happening? So that was a big thing for me. Like before I went over, I was like, what is going on? Like why, why are so many people coming to faith now? Not the last 1400 years. I mean, you can read of missionaries that went to this part of the world, the Muslim world historically, but you can read, maybe they made a little traction here, a little traction there, and then they died and then fizzled yeah. out. So why now? Um, of course, we can't answer that question in totality. Maybe the trajectory of the whole world heading this direction. But at the same time, why now? Like, why practically? Like, what's happening that is allowing this impact to happen? And the reality is God's used Muslim extremism as the Trojan horse for Islam. So the face, most, a Muslim, it's, this is super critical for Americans to understand, and especially people in the military context, because we have a, we get painted a certain picture mentality. A lot of times we can just view them as animals, as tools to use. Even worse, we view them as like worthless, and we just would rather just drop a bomb than have to go back over there and mm -hmm. lose a buddy. So, which, none of which is okay. None of which is okay in the heart of humans, but not, especially if I want to claim the name of Christ, not okay. Mm. But I might not even realize it's in there. Like, especially in the military, it can just happen over time. You become jaded, racist, if we want to say it, and that can start to bleed into other areas of your life here in America. So, um, what was I going with that? So, many Muslims are coming to faith. Um, Why is that happening now? Yeah. Yeah, so... The reality is most Muslims are like normal human beings. They're like the average American. They want a good life for their family and their kids and a good future for their kids. Live in peace. They have their religion. Maybe they do a few religious activities. That's it. Of course, with Islam, it's, wo it's much deeper. It's woven into the whole entire culture, every aspect of culture. So it's different in that aspect from Christianity in America. But if you took... I would say a nominal Christian in America, someone who says, yeah, yeah, I go to church. I'm a Christian. They do a few religious things. Mm. They live their life trying to provide a good future for their children. If they have better work opportunities, they take it and they grow old and they die. And it looks exactly like the nominal Muslim mm. in the majority of the Middle East. Now, what is the, uh, um, with your experience, the difference between a, a Sunni Muslim and a, is it Shia? Mm -hmm. Now, is that a big, I mean, that's a huge divide. Yeah. So are the, the majority are Sunni, correct? Yeah. And, and that would be more of what you're talking about. I guess. Um, the No, I'm talking honestly in general. Okay. Each sect Just across the board. Their, yeah. I'm, forgive my ignorance. Cause no, 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 I know that's, it's, <laughs> 
but yeah, um, there's a, there's differences that have occurred over time, especially between those two. But right. the main one being who was supposed to be the successor to right. Muhammad for the religion, and that was a big rift. Right. Yeah, so you have the majority one direction and the minority the other, and fighting that still happens today. Now, the, even in countries like Yemen, right? People are backing different sides mm, based on yeah their sect. Well, now they want to take over. I guess my question was: Is one sect more? Uh, what's the word? Extremist. Extremist. Historically Shia, but as we saw with ISIS, that's changing. Yeah, it's 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 not right. about the sect so much as true Islam. Right. And the ISIS right. is like the culmination of the true face of Islam, and this right. is why it's become the Trojan horse. Because most Muslims would say, no, we're a religion of peace. Like, yeah. We're really tolerant. Yeah. Like, even though maybe they're sheik or they're cleric or whoever would preach and say, you know, Christians are, the Americans especially, the infidel. Like, Muslims know the gospel. Like, at least the base message. They know what a Christian will come to them and say. Yeah. And they're taught, stop, their, stop your ears. Like, they're just trying to brainwash you. They're trying to convert you. In fact, a Muslim's going to do a, bet, a lot better job to the average Christian yeah. of turning around and trying to convert them. And mm-hmm. they know, a lot of Muslims know a lot more scripture than most Christians do. Oh. Which is I bet. very sad. But, <clears throat> um, so you have this normal Muslim, and the Arab Spring, what happened was a lot of, gov- uh, a lot of people in a lot of countries, it snowballed and dominoed, but they were upset with the way they were being governed. Right, there was oppression in different forms, and once one country started, they just kind of dominoed effect. Of course, social media helped with that. You're like showing, well, they can do it, we can do it. But the hope was in a lot of these countries that an Islamic government would solve those problems. Like we're we're Muslims. Like yeah, if they would rule like we're supposed to be ruled, like from Muslims, everything will be better. And the problem was the opposite happened. So Muslims in all these countries began to face oppression at the hands of Muslims hmm. who were more extremist, more fundamentalist. And well, sorry, that's, it's fundamentalism, right? That That's the extreme element of it. Like to me, I've always understood it. And maybe this is typical American ignorance that true Islam, if that's the right term is violent towards the West. And, that's not what the majority believe or, or want to practice at all. But is that correct? Is it, would that be a correct statement? That true Islam, quote unquote, is... The reason why you have that is... Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Of course you have where the Muslim, the Muslim the Islamic conquests, they were good fighters. Yeah. They took over a lot yeah. of areas, right? You have those things, but those came from somewhere. So you had Muhammad's life, right? And he started trying to make it a religion of peace being tolerant, working amongst Christians. And the problem was it didn't work. Yeah. For 10 years, he like gained no traction. He had a few followers. He ended up getting kicked out of where he was. And he went... Exiled. Yeah, he got exiled. Yeah. And the next city he went to, he flipped his tactic and mm-hmm. was like, we're going we're gonna to force people to become part of this. And when it worked, he went back to where he started from and did the same exact thing. Mm. So I think during his lifetime, I can't remember exactly, but he was a part of... 10, 20 wars during his lifetime. And during those times, he had been, it was over 22 years. He was receiving 
revelation from the prophet or mm-hmm. the angel Gabriel of the the Quranic verses, basically. Mm-hmm. But the problem with the Quran is you see uh, contrast or contradiction all over the place, right? And they'll say the 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 thing with it is they'll it's called abrogation. But basically, what comes later negates what came before. So. In the beginning, it was a religion of peace. By the end, it was a religion of yeah. war. In fact, the last surahs or chapters that were written were, had the most violence and things to do in oppression because that's how his life ended with his yeah. conquest. Well, it's almost an interpretation issue. Like you said, with the contradictions in the Quran, it's, it's, it's like you can take things. Well, if you use that principle of what comes later is... is more valid than what comes before <laughs> then then no it's not an interpretation issue because you're obviously going to take most of your your um uh, theology if you would like to call it from the from the latter part of the book right well so, i don't well most wouldn't yeah. because again like i think it's in the heart of humans we want a good life yeah you know what i mean we want to live in peace but yet i have this book so what am i going to teach you know yeah yeah and you end up teaching things and and here Herein lies the reality. It's an ideology. It's not just a religion. It's an ideology. It's woven in. It's brainwashed in, and it's been done amongst super illiterate cultures. Mm. So people can't read for themselves. They listen to what they're told, and then they can they can regurgitate it like on command, right? So you have many people who are ignorant of what the faith actually is, only because. And I would say again, just look at American Christianity. You have the same thing, right? People sit in a church, hear something a pastor says, and they regurgitate it like it's truth, and they've never opened their Bible, right? It's just, yeah. you're like, are you sure that's true? Well, yeah, pastor so-and-so said, yeah, my my Muslim sheikh told me that. It's actually really similar. Yeah, it's very yeah. similar <laughs> in these ways, right? It's This is religion. And right. actually religion, in some ways, controlling the narrative, but I would say it's, for us, it's not out of ignorance or laziness. We have complete capability to study the scriptures. You can't claim ignorance, but they're, they're illiterate and it's been used to control. So what's happening now though, this is the big difference. And I'll say a little bit of like strategy and how, how we, as a ministry, I'm saying we, it's they, as a ministry, I've joined this local ministry, but how they, um, get Muslims to think logically. Mm. So it's a big problem in the culture. Using logic, um, critically thinking. In fact, in Islam, if you ask questions, you're chastised. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have faith, you know. Don't ask those questions, you know. I see that here too. You do see that here too, right? And maybe sometimes that's because they don't know the answer yeah. and they don't want to yeah. have to deal with it. But <clears throat> there you may have the same thing, but also it's a dangerous question because mm-hmm. if you follow that trail you're going to see it leads to a problem within the religion. So people don't ask questions. Um, so if you can get people or Muslims to start to think critically and logically about their own religion, you can get them to a very a problematic place for them, but a good problematic place. So I'll say something really quick because I don't know how much time you want to spend on what and any of that, but in the Quran it mentions Jesus, I think, 25 to 30 times. It mentions Muhammad four times. In the Quran, Muhammad's in the grave. Jesus is with God. In the Quran, Jesus is coming back at the end, mm-hmm. about to take Muslims to heaven. 
in the Quran, uh, Jesus creates life and he breathes life into a creature he created. And in another verse, only Allah or only God can create life. But people don't think, and there's, there's other pieces, many other pieces actually I'd say, to a puzzle that when you start to get them to look at it, especially in Arabic, so the way the Arabic language is and the way it's interpreted into English, you can't get the full context yeah. and the weight of it. Sometimes it's similar in English from Greek and Hebrew. That's Greek and Hebrew, yeah. 70 translations. But <clears throat> so an, a, piece, a person that speaks Arabic and especially that maybe was a Muslim, but especially someone who knows the culture and speaks Arabic can get them to look at this passage and get them to think logically, what is it really saying? And I've watched, this is very early on, I've watched a devout, looked like a devout Muslim, wife was all wrapped up, have a conversation with my teammate where they're very defensive and argumentative at first. And then over time, they start to slow down and be more pensive. And eventually, they stop talking. And then eventually, they're like, I almost kind of laughed. And they're like, okay, tell me. Mm -hmm. Like, show me. And I've heard people say, you have, you have a... Uh, fake Quran. It's a false Quran. And I was like, go bring us yours. Open it up. Yeah. <laughs> and they've never, they, uh, some of these people have read the Quran a hundred times. Some people have memorized the entire Quran, but hmm. they've never thought about what they memorized. And when they start to think about it, it creates a big problem because it shows from the Quran, Jesus has to be more than a prophet. So they believe Jesus is a prophet just like they believe in all our other prophets from Judaism and before. <clears throat> but they don't believe, obviously, that he's God. So you can't lead in with that, which is the problem with most Christians that want to preach the gospel. You're leading in with <clears throat> Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. And they're like, blasphemy, heretic, yeah. like, get out of here. But in the Quran, and this is some people don't agree with this, this uh, method because we're using a false religion's book. <clears throat> well, that's what they, I don't, that's what, what? It, but it's true. Again, this is, this is religiosity. At its yeah. Core. Yeah. In scripture, it says God leaves his footprints everywhere that people might find him. That's how you can, there's books. I don't know if you've read some of these stories, but there's tribes on islands, cannibal tribes, mm -hmm. and they have practices that mirror the gospel that it took missionaries being there years to see this and use it as the key to help show them what Christ is like. But it was in their culture already, like something they did. I'll give you an example later, but my point is there's truth in the Quran because they pulled from Judaism, the, the Gospels. Right? It's an Abrahamic religion. It is, right? They pulled from all these other texts, a bunch of made-up stuff, the Apocrypha, mm -hmm. Zoroastrianism, other things, and it's all mumble-jumble, doesn't make a lot of sense, bounces mm. all over the place. So there's truth in there. Right? There's real truth because it came from God's word. That's why it's true. It doesn't make your book right or holy. It just came from there. But if you can get them to think about the pieces that show Jesus is more than a prophet, well, then there's nothing else about Jesus in there. And in the Quran, it says, if you don't understand, go to the people of the book. And it means the Jews or the Christians. And like, so if you want to learn more, we'll open the Bible with you. So you're, we're using the Quran as a bridge to get to the Bible so that they're willing to sit and listen. Otherwise, if you say, you want to look at the Bible with me? Like, no, it's been corrupted. They're taught. Bible's been changed. You've changed it to show Jesus is God and all this other stuff. 
But once you show from their Quran, from their text, that Jesus has to be something more than I've ever thought, either if they refuse to go on, and it's not very many, most people want to keep going. Um, and even when they go through the rest of the process, most people, a lot of people that go through this discipleship, or we call it pre-discipleship process, come to faith because it's very clear and evident. And they want to know more because they genuinely want to know the truth. Mm -hmm. But the people who don't want to continue on or don't come to faith, they can't ever look at the Quran the same way. Mm. Like, you can't look in it anymore and not see Jesus. Like, He's the he's the crux. Even in these verses you've seen, he's the he's actually the one. Like it's not Muhammad. Muhammad's like has everybody still praying for him. You know, Jesus is with God. Mm. But anyways, so I don't want to. No man, go. this is all very interesting to me. Yeah, this is all very interesting to me. Um, do you see in 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 the people that? you get to spend time with and go through this process with, do you see age? Does, does age matter? Because I'm thinking if you've got this Muslim guy or girl that has been bought into this false religion for 50 something years, like versus a younger person, and I ask this question because I see this here in the States and as far as sharing the gospel with people here in the States, it's really hard to exp to get somebody to really see the need for Christ after they get past a certain age. I don't know why. I can't explain it. But <clears throat> if you get past like, if you're dealing with somebody that's like in their late thirties, forties, it's tough. It's it's tough to even talk to that person or work. Have you seen that with them? So are you target to clarify? <clears throat> I'm not the one primarily doing this. Yeah. I've I've learned from some of these pieces and tried to have conversations mm -hmm. on my own. <clears throat> but I don't speak the language well enough to do it in their language by yeah. far. And I don't know the culture that well, and I can't even do it from an Arabic Quran properly. So, like, they would say anything. The Quran, the Arabic is God's language. In heaven, God speaks Arabic. Yeah. So anything from that's not a translation. It's just an interpretation. Like, it's garbage, basically. So me reading from an English Quran doesn't even yeah. do it justice, right? I can have conversations and, and stir up questions and stuff like that, but it's not my which we can get to whenever, but it's not my primary role either. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> our, our, like I said, with like an SF, our role is by, with, and through the locals, mm -hmm. the locals to reach their people. Um, not it's American coming in to save the day. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that's my eagle question. flying. You know, but I'm just kidding. Leading into this is that you think about that part of the world, right? We don't see a lot of churches over there. So how's this being accomplished? If you can talk about that yet in our part of the world, you see a ton of churches, but how strong is our faith? Right. Um, can you talk on that at all about that specific makeup of not how believers are gathering, but how we're worshiping there? I can. So I'll give a really brief, and this is basically information that's on our website. We have a 501c3 here. 
to build a bridge to the ministry there. So the ministry there started over 20 years ago and um, it was started with a vision to see house churches planted in the 22 Arabic nations, Iran, Turkey, and Israel. So 25 nations accomplished that by planting one healthy house church for every thousand people. Small task because there's and now 600 plus million people. Um, <clears throat> and I, I really think this is true too. Um, which we can have a side conversation or continue later if you want, because I listened with Hal last night on a house church podcast you did a few months ago, but very passionate about this. But um, so I'm, I'm working with a buddy of mine to do some house church planting in Fayetteville. <clears throat> and the hard part, I don't want to say the hard part. There are a lot of details and, and ways to do it healthily or not do it healthily. But at the same time, <clears throat> I think, a proper way is to gain what God wants to do in the area in which you're going to operate. If that makes sense. Meaning if we can read scripture and say, what's God been doing since the fall, right? What plan did he start to enact to redeem humankind? And where did it, how it culminated with Christ. And then all of a sudden it was like all of you, Go make disciples. Like you're now my my body, my presence on earth, and I'll be with you. And his vision isn't for like, well, go to three people. That's enough. Plant a couple house churches. That's good. Good job. You're done. You know, go to heaven. Go to this one place, and if you do this capacity, okay, you're good. His heart's for everyone. We have to believe that because we don't know who's going to believe. So if his heart's for everyone. How can I have any, how could I want to start something with any less of a vision than he has, right? So if his vision's for everyone, then practically I can't just assume, well, I just want to start one house church, you know, because I really enjoy it hmm. and I enjoy the benefits of it. I have to think, what does he want to do? If this is the right, because honestly, it's just a vehicle. It's a tool, right? Just like the building is a tool. The house is a tool in the same capacity. But if this is the right vehicle, right tool, and I believe that, okay, then how does he want to use it to actually accomplish his will here? I'm saying here because we're here, but in Fayetteville, in, in the Middle East. So that's where the vision came from to say, we need to plant one healthy house church for every thousand people. Because if that happens, it's a church that can't be stopped. It, it, it can't be stopped because of persecution. It can't be stopped because of COVID. It can't be stopped because of governments. It's everywhere, and it can effectively reach the people around it. At least, it, by reach, we don't mean everyone comes to faith, because we know that everyone won't come to faith. Scripture's clear about this. But that everyone has a clear understanding of the truth, at least from it being presented properly, and they reject it, mm. or they accept it. Um, so... That was the vision, and it's been happening for 20-plus years now, um, currently working in seven countries as a ministry. And it's a, I mean, it's a large ministry. It's local. It's all locals. Um, I'm, at least right now, I'm the only foreigner working with them, but we should have another couple joining us soon. But um, the unique thing I think I saw was, the detail, the attention to detail. So like a lot of the house church stuff that I've read, studied, um, and movements that have come with this in different parts of the world. If you guys ever heard the term movement, church plant movement, CPM, or 
No. I don't know. Okay. It's it comes around a lot with people that talk about house churches because what's happening in certain parts of the world, many people are apparently coming to faith. And so they termed it movement, basically. When people come to faith this rapidly, it's just a movement of God. And so a lot of the issues with that that I saw were people cared a lot about the breadth, but not about the depth. So we have tons of believer people coming to faith and tons of house churches planted, but okay, where are they next year? Where is that church even exist anymore? And a lot of times nobody has an answer because there's not an infrastructure to care about the depth, right? To ensure that what's there remains and keeps growing and it's rooted and it's healthy. So it can multiply. It can, cause you can multiply a virus, right? So we don't, we don't want to multiply virus. We want to multiply healthy churches. So you have to care about the depth. But to care about the depth when you have a lot of house churches, how do you do that? You have to create some kind of structure, infrastructure, I would say. It's not a structure to contain it. It's a structure within so mm-hmm. it can support it as it keeps growing. Um, so that was something that was super encouraging was seeing they have this attention to detail where there's house churches that existed for 20 plus years. They know where they meet. They know when they meet. They know who their leader is. They know how many people are there and who's been baptized. And it's fluctuated in health over time because mm. they're tracking it. And when there's issues, they're attending it. Right? They have leaders come in and work with people. They train people. They mm. deal with issues within, like an elder would do, for example, within issues in the house church. And um, So, yeah, the ministry's been going for this period of time. And um, so then I we, we come over and that became... Um, I ended up working with a guy over there that is a part of this ministry pretty quickly. I won't tell that story because it deals with some other places we were, but, but long story short, I realized quickly, like we need to be working with this ministry. Like they know what they're doing. They know contextually, they know, uh, strategically they have great care and attention to detail. This isn't like some a lot of times Americans and Westerners have a problem working with local ministries because they think we think we know better. Mm. We think we can do it better. And at the end of the day, we, we want to put our stamp on it. We want to own it. And especially we don't want to submit ourselves to the authority of someone else. Like we're Americans, <clears throat> but that I believe is how foreign missions will actually be accomplished most healthily. I'm not saying that, there's not a history of missions where it was necessary for people to go to a place where no church existed and they had to do everything and they only knew from their denominational standpoint how to do it. And that's what got established there. Okay. God used it. Right. But that's not the case for the majority of places today. Um, you, you can work by with and through the locals. So, um, can, can you define house church that's separate from how's that different from, Traditional church for a listener. You have time. <laughs> in, in, in two sentences or less. How about that? Um, it's different. I will say in a healthy house church, because you can take what's done in a building church and just do the same exact thing in a, in a, in a house. I mean, what's done in there can be replicated here. And a lot of times I've seen that actually done. People that want to start a house church, take what they know and they do it in a small setting and they enjoy it more because it is, it's closer fellowship. You get to know each other better. But if our goal is to make disciples, 
and discipleship is messy. It's dealing with issues. It's, it involves pressure, right? Because, okay, scripture's clear. Like, we need to be put in a crucible if we want the dross to be melted off. That means pressure. That means, like, tribulation. That means trials. And our leadership should be doing that to us. But a lot of times in American church, we don't do that. We're soft and touchy and, you know, maybe I'll pray a prayer and form some accountability thing or whatever. We don't have to change. At the end of the day, then we don't really have to change. But I think true discipleship is you get confronted with situations where you have to change. And you decide for yourself, do I want to or not, right? I clearly see this is wrong and the wrong way to go. Now I either have to say, I don't care. I want to keep going that way. Or I'm like, I, I don't know how to do the right thing. I'm going to keep struggling, but I'm, I'm going to submit myself. I'm going to, I want to go the right direction. So the house church provides an avenue for that to happen in a way you can't by and large in a large corporate structure. So much more community. That'd be a word to describe it. When done healthily. And is there one person that just gets up and speaks and then basically, you know, gives a sermon and then it's done and then everyone's dismissed? Because that's what I think is the is a huge, I don't know, it just seems like an issue is the way that churches are run so many times is like, when is there a space for conversation and questions and mm. You know, I don't know. I just, yeah. I think you, that maybe could be achieved more in a, a, a house church like you're describing, but yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> I'll answer it with a, a common um, concern. Mm -hmm. When you talk about house churches, it's probably one of the biggest things I've heard from pastors and people's, people that work in the established church, which is, well, how do you keep false teaching and heresy from uh -huh. happening? Right. You're, you're spreading all these house churches. Right. Like, who's trained to oversee yeah. such a thing? Right. right. And there's truth to that, but then the the real truth is, if you do some research, where did heresies start from? Huh. All the heresies started from deep theology within established churches and denominations. And the deeper they dug in and studied and they nuanced the words, then they twisted something in a different direction and ran off with it. It wasn't people in a house church looking at scripture and simply obeying what they saw and living it out practically, like. When it didn't you create, don't have you don't have these random offshoots, of and it didn't create something dogmatic. I, I think that's what happened in more of what what you were describing the the heresies that sprung up. It, it became dogmatic, and yeah, I don't know. That's very interesting to me. I, I mean, I think the community aspect of it, and you're going to get a much deeper relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you ran the basic school with fifty people versus eight, yeah. It's a completely different experience. Yeah. And so the goal is. Well, you can't hide. Can't. You're going to have to. <laughs> That's the key. You can't hide. <laughs> and you're going to be exposed. Yeah. In your weakness. Exactly, man. And you're going to have a teammate pick you up. Yeah. And that's the idea of this community. Church and not just to exist among, let's just pick a number, eight. But to expand that into the next house church, the next one, and the next one. Yeah. Um, to, to spread the word and truly disciple as opposed to just once on Sunday, hey, we're going to go hang out at a men's group 
and uh, maybe we'll do something else during the week. Mm-hmm. It's a part of your everyday life mm-hmm. with that. That's very effective. Yeah. Much more. Yeah. I, I, I have to ask you, um, oh, what was your name again? Kevin. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to ask you, Kevin, uh, these, the, the, the people that you got your specific ministry in the Middle East is working with, uh, are they, are they, I know it's probably dependent on where they are, but do you see them suffering persecution from the, the community in places? Is that, is that actively going on? Do you see that or hear about that or? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it highly varies based on the country. Yeah. Even based on, the area of the country or the city based on, I'd say it even boils down to the family is the big thing. So how conservative Islamic a family is greatly affects what decisions might be made based on someone coming to faith or leaving and becoming a Christian. So Mm. could be that they accept them, but they just ignore them and treat them as less than could be that they kick them out of their house and disown them. Could be that, whoever the high male figure in the family is at that time decides, okay, we're going to kill him. So it depends on the context greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the easiest way to say it. Yeah. The more Islamic a government is, the more justifiable it is for whatever actions are taken against a Christian mm-hmm. or a Muslim that's become a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, which few caveat or a few things with that I didn't mention before, but so in a, in the countries where there is, historical Christianity, predominantly Egypt, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria. Um, You have, when you're born, your birth certificate says Christian or Muslim on it. (laughs) And when you're of age and you get an ID, it says Christian or Muslim on it. And it's illegal to change from Muslim to Christian on your ID. But it is legal to change from Christian to Muslim, of course. Mm. Um, So you have this sewn in, separation which everyone knows exists but you know it creates um continued ethnic hatred um and tensions but the negative side there's many negative sides that i didn't grow up in this environment of course i know some people now who have but the hard part is this christian presence is one of two big pieces that Muslims know of when they think Christian, like when they hear Christian, it's these people that we see, which may be Orthodox, Catholic, Chaldean, Assyrian, etc., that have been here historically. They've got their rote religion. It's wrong. We're right. Yeah. <clears throat> or they think of America and the West mm-hmm. who they assume we claim to be a Christian nation. Historically, most people say they are Christians, and then all they see in the media is a bunch of secularism. Yeah. Of course, we're the infidel. So they have these two pieces. But so the, the, the way to accomplish this vision from the beginning was through three phases. Phase one was go to the nominal Christian. There are or not nominal, the, the existing uh, professing Christian. Yeah. Right. There's an evangelical presence in some of these countries. And where the ministry was started, specifically, there are a lot of, a decent number, I would say, of Christians. But they're in their bubble, right? Because of this ethnic hatred historically, they're not reaching out to Muslims. In fact, it's illegal to. It's illegal for a Muslim to walk in the door of a church building. It's illegal by the government standpoint, but it's it's uh, not acceptable by the society. 
So even if the government was like, okay, it's okay for a Muslim to explore, the society won't accept that. Yeah, yeah. They'll be watching. This happens in Turkey. They'll be have p- police post outside taking pictures of everyone going in. You know, so it's it's not acceptable, which creates a problem even practically if we're thinking about building churches. Well, then how are you going to reach Muslims if your way of church planting is to go? establish a building and you go through the hoops and jumps that you have to do for the government to say, okay, you can do that one report all these things to us. You got your building. Well, now what are you going to do? You can't bring Muslims in it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you're, if you're there for the majority of the people that are Muslim. Wow. Um, so that was even part of the beginning. Okay. Practically, how are we going to see nations reached? I mean, it's not going to be through, what most people know of is the church. Mm-hmm. Now, does everything exist in that binary of Christian Muslim or is so if, if a Muslim father family would reject one of their children from converting to Christianity and, and potentially killed, killed them, would they react as severely if it was another religion or maybe they just said they don't believe in God at all or, or, would they react the same or would By they? By and large, no, they wouldn't. Yeah. Christianity is more a severe. Yeah. Okay. Yep. It, it, it is. It's, it's very interesting how that happens, but there are, there are decent size in different countries, atheist movements mm-hmm. because of these extremist groups and people be like, I just can't palate Islam anymore. Mm-hmm. But really it's more like agnostic. Like yeah, they not can't sure. not believe in God, but it's not Islam. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, I, I can't help but um, make mention of, of some of our listeners that are going to listen to this, and they're, they are, maybe they are more agnostic. Maybe they uh, are, don't, don't subscribe to any Christianity or whatever. And they're probably sitting here, and, and some of you are thinking, well, why, like, it seems like all... All y'all's religious stuff, all it does is, all it's doing is causing conflict. Like, you, you see, when, we're talk, when we talk about these two religions specifically, Islam and Christian, a lot, of, a lot of agnostics say, why would you subscribe to either one of those? Like, all it's doing is causing conflict and war and, 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 and all this crap that's happening in the world. So, like... Give me what are some good things that are coming that you've seen? What are some fruits of the work that you guys are doing over there? Uh, what? It, it, how is this impacting people's lives, improving? Other than the fact that they, obviously, the number one impact is they come to the understanding of the true God, which is Jesus Christ and the understanding of the true gospel of Christ and what he did for us. That's obviously the ultimate transition. But what are some fruits of, of, of this that you've, that you've been seeing? Yeah. In, in people's lives, in, in, in families, in, in, in community, in and yep. all, all that stuff. So with any ideology, it's going to affect you know, all, the, all the aspects and the facets of your life. So with Islam... It's definitely true in family, in marriage, in the treatment of women, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a beautiful thing, but it also paints the picture of the problem 
in any ideology that's not linked back to God's own principles, right? But Muslims coming to faith and watching them struggle and wrestle with changing, right? That like they hit their wife and they don't want to Mm. and they're weeping over it, but Mm. it's just all they've known how and they want help how to stop, for example. Um, So, I mean, these are, I'm giving some examples that tangibly maybe some listeners will understand because even these things happen in America because people grew up a certain way. They grew up in a certain environment and they replicated that when they got married or whenever they had kids or. Yeah. So we see this very clearly in the lives of people here in America or maybe in our own lives, people listen on the podcast, right? If you've come to faith in Christ, you, I hope, have seen radical change. You know you still screw up and you still sin and you still mess up, but you've seen those things that had control of your life and you may not have even called them bad you thought those bad things were actually good. You saw them completely in a different light and desire to walk away from them if you haven't already. Um, and those bad things, I think even atheists most of the time and agnostics agree are bad. Like they don't benefit anyone except the person doing them to someone, mm-hmm. which I think all the globalist movement stuff in the world is supposed to be anti-self. Of course, it doesn't end up that way, but um, so that, I mean, that's a few things I would say we do see a lot of transformation in people's lives to like just becoming better human beings, right? Uh, becoming, learning how to use in some ways, learn how to use their brains again. Yeah. Like how to really think about life in a different viewpoint from something that just controlled everything. Um, yeah, there's a lot of freedom in that. So, I mean, the church, and I think we've seen this historically, should be impacting the communities that exist in. The church, the people, should be impacting the communities that they live in. And, of course, with the gospel, but by living out godly principles, yeah. that should be impacting things around them. Like, if we're loving people, if we're uh, doing things that look like Christ, then it should start to rub off on and impact people around us. Now, I would say this does happen in these contexts, but it's more difficult to navigate. I think it's easier to see that here because it's so tolerable and acceptable. Mm -hmm. Like you can just have Christianity out in the open, right? But even with these house churches, a lot of the evangelical church even doesn't, don't like house churches. If they can exist as the evangelical church, it's because the government has allowed it because they know what's happening and they, you know, there's mm-hmm. control, but you can't control what's happening out in a whole bunch of homes. So even them, they would feel maybe it puts them at risk. Decentralized. <clears throat> it's decentralized. And, and, and honestly, as a minister, that's why we don't report anything. And yeah. it's very low key. It's everywhere. And yet nowhere, mm-hmm. you're not going to go find it. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of positive change. And, of course, we, we try to help with that practically, um, even with different projects. So we, this past year we started a farm where we live to help the local house church network, and they're running it. I mean, they have done so much hard work. But the purpose for it was, one, a lot of them are refugees, and they have low income. They have... Um, in unstable jobs where they're working three part-time jobs just to make 
a little bit of money. So to provide opportunities where they can have work that helps their lives. I mean, anyone from any walk would help, would want to get behind that regardless of Christian or not. It's yeah. like, okay, these people have a rough life. Yeah. We want to help them. Um, unless you just don't care as a human being, but, um, but then deeper than that, we wanted it to help form this Christian community. Mm-hmm. Like, so they left. And again, this is a big thing for when a Muslim is doubting their faith, they're not going to express that doubt to people around them because it's literally questioning their own identity. Like, since the time they grew up, the way they eat, the way they talk, the way they greet each other, the things they do, the prayer calls, like everything is Islamic. So when you wrestle with that, you're doubting your identity, you're doubting your own whole community, right? Mm-hmm. And when you choose to leave that, you know you're leaving your whole community, which these are things that we can learn from as Americans, but Islam does community very well. Mm-hmm. They, in some ways, do family pretty well. Um they do hospitality very well. Mm-hmm. A lot of things that we need actually that the early church was doing very well. Um, they're doing very well. In fact, that's why I think they're very successful. It's very attractive right? Yeah. for someone to be like, I'm a part of this thing. Right? Yeah. I'm a part of a community, not like a church where I sit and I can't be seen by anyone. And unless I want to join something extra, I'm just, I'm a body. Um, so yeah, the, the farm was to hope, hopefully help, establish a deeper community with them. And then we're hoping that it's something that as it continues to become more profitable can essentially sustain the ministry there. Mm -hmm. So instead of needing outside funds, which right now it does. So this is a piece of why I'm sitting here today is not just funds, but so it's a local based Middle East ministry that currently today is overseeing 19,000 plus house churches in seven nations. And they have 500 plus full and part-time staff. Um, when we say full and part-time staff, it's true, but it doesn't look like what we think in America where you have a pastor in a church and you know you have to make this American wage in order to live the American life. It's We even use principles that... Um, principles where even we don't provide everything that they need in order that they don't get spoiled by it, so to speak. Yeah. Where ministry doesn't become a job. And even when we get to that point, it's it's a process of someone growing as a believer, then growing in seeing their heart and wanting to serve and seeing the gifts God gives them and giving them a little responsibility and helping them with yeah. it. And when they're faithful with it, giving them a little more responsibility and helping and coaching, giving them a little more responsibility. And they want to spend themselves until eventually they're stretched too thin, Right. Maybe they're overseeing five house churches uh, and they work a full-time labor job and they've got a family and they're going to trainings and meetings and they can't effectively grow anymore, but they want to. They're being faithful what they have. The only way to go further is essentially for them to be able to stop working that job and keep going, essentially. Keep multiplying in different capacities, which we haven't got into how the whole ministry even works, but... um. So they can't sustain that in a lot of these economies. They're very poor economies. Um, you don't have a large church presence that cares to support such a thing. So effectively, like we need the church to partner. We need the church. And it's not just about funds, but people don't know, like this right here, people don't know this is happening. Mm, yeah. So they don't even know to pray for such a thing. It's not even on a radar. Mm-hmm. So people here need to know what's happening 
and we're, our hope is that we build true partnerships, which we view like marriages. Like it's a, it's a two way relationship that can be very healthy. That's what we desire, but everyone's not going to want to desire that. Some people want to write a check. Okay. That's how God did it. Some people, they don't have the funds. They want to pray. We need prayer. We really need people to be praying. That's why people need to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. But I think many people have gifts and skills and something that would be stirred inside them that through conversations would be like, maybe I can help in this way. And they didn't know they could without building a relationship and a partnership in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we came back as a family to essentially help try to establish a team here that can do that because um, my teammate and I have been coming back pretty much twice a year for four to six weeks to try to build relationships. And then we go back there full time and you, it's just, it becomes unfeasible to try yeah. to keep building those relationships or even find new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I w- we were the, I'd say the best candidate because we're the non native um, to that part of the world. But I don't remember the question was asked or how I went that no, direction. No, man, I, I just, I, I just, it, it's great to hear like the essentially, and, and I can understand this. I asked the question like, what good was coming out of this for for the Muslim people and for these communities? And it's it's freedom. It's it's the freedom from 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 darkness. Essentially, I. I I anticipated that being the answer um, because I I have been to Muslim countries and, dude, there is a heaviness on these people, man. And, and like, it's almost, it's just in the air almost. At least I've sensed that. Like, I'll never forget, like, walking from the embassy in Tunisia to my little safe house out in town and... It's just eerie when the call that call for prayer goes out and you know you just slide your backpack with your MP5 around to the front of your chest because you just feel this heaviness that these people live in it it's they're bound by this religion essentially they're bound well yeah they're they're bound by this spirit that and that's is in charge of all this and like, yeah, I didn't respond that way just so you know, because your, <clears throat> your reference to it was for atheists and agnostics listening. So yeah, like, yeah. That's, they that's don't a, get the release that, from spiritual darkness. That, <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. That, that was, yeah. And so, um, they don't know the freedom that is in Christ. Exactly, man. Exactly. It's even hard for them to understand that darkness. And <clears throat> I would just encourage if, if that is the case. I think the easiest translation to us is, is, is what held me up for so long, right? I wasn't 10 years old and knew I wanted to be a missionary. That's the farthest thing from my mind. But I can remember sitting down with this pastor. He was trying to mentor me, and he's like, what is the holdup? I said, I was 22. I said, look, I'm afraid I'm not going to have fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And he said, what's your definition of fun isn't going to be fun anymore. There's pure joy waiting for you. Mm-hmm. And I think for that non-believer, it's important to know that, like, all of that stuff I've done and it doesn't even come close to being in the same ballpark as the joy and peace that God offers through that. Mm-hmm. I think that's the easiest way for me to explain to that agnostic or non-believer of why, why are why you doing is, this? Why? Yeah. Right? Is it just so you can call yourself a Christian? No, trust me. 
there is a life for you that is so much more than what you're experiencing. Yeah. And total freedom from all the bondage that you're in. Yeah. And for the believer into that darkness that they have over there, just it's heavy, right? The rules, the regulations. We don't live by a set of rules, right? That's why Jesus came, abolished all that. Mm -hmm. And we obey out of love. So I'm sorry to get on a tangent. No, there, man. But I just wanted to. Yeah. <clears throat> well, dude, we're freaking two two and a half hours into this. Um, I oh, know dude, there's. Can talk. Uh, uh, if you want. <laughs> uh, no, man. I mean, this has all been so interesting, and and just um, you, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know that this was going on. Like, I didn't know that. I, I I've never met someone like you, Kevin that has devoted their lives to this aspect of the body of Christ and, and working the way you, you are working. And, and, um, it's been really informative for me personally. I know there's tons of other things that we could unpack, man, but I, uh, I think it's going to be an, it's going to be a good eye opener for some of the listeners and um Kevin I want you to put out man how people can if they if they if they want to support this ministry they want to support what you guys are doing where can people find you guys follow you yeah all that good stuff yeah so it's it is pretty low key we do have a website it's the basics um without giving locations and and things like that yeah um but you can give through it it's a U.S. based 501c3. Uh, the the website is cpdeministries.org. Um, that would be the easiest way, and you can get connected on there. You can send a message, which will come to our contact or our email, where we could we could chat about okay. whatever you want to chat about. Yep, that's awesome, man. Um, and what is the uh? I guess for you, like, what are what's the next steps for you, man? Are are you going to be here for a while? And uh, I mean, I, you plan to go back, or yeah, I mean, that's where your home is now, essentially. So I assume you do. Yeah, that's where our home is. We we didn't um, particularly want to come back. <laughs> um, it was a struggle for my wife um, in this capacity. You know, she wanted to come back and see her family, go to an amusement park, eat donuts and go back to Kurdistan. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but they don't have good donuts there or bacon, but dang. Yeah. No pork, man. That's I've smuggled pork in my suitcase many times. Mm -hmm. Um, food situations, not that's good food. Good it's, food. You can't have pork. <laughs> dang. Um, all those wild boar though in the mountains. So if you can find and some rabbit, it'll let you hunt and rabbit. I remember going into my first Muslim grocery store and they had like rabbit and stuff. And I was like, the heck, man? It's because they don't have pork, I guess. <laughs> the other pork. Yeah. <clears throat> well, they do have halal pork. If you know the term halal, it's meat that they can eat. I'm just kidding. No, it doesn't exist. <laughs> pork is pork. I was about to say. That's well, that's it's like kosher. Uh, yeah, well, they got kosher, kosher pork. Yeah, yeah. You're like, what? <laughs> Yeah, man. It's been it's blessed. Good. It's real good. Um, crud. 
Did you just ask them? The ne- next, what, what, yeah. what's on your, what's on your radar? What's next? So yeah, we didn't want to come back. Um, and t- like our personal selves, right? It's like, I want to be there. My wife's life is there now. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I tell people all the time, which you get, you, you guys get, you know, the military use that phrase, or at least we do in the army, find a hole and fill it. And I feel like, and this is something I meant to mention earlier. Sometimes I think this is the clarity of calling is we know our general calling and then God shows us by practicality. It happens in front of us or around us. We're exposed to it, a need and the need. We're the ones standing there. Yeah. It's like you, you see a car crash happen and you're like, I'm going to pull over and help because it happened. Yeah. And I didn't have to ask God, like, should I pull over? Should I not? Like, so we see a need. It aligns with God's heart and his will in the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a need. Um, so it's, it was that idea with this. It was really through my teammate helping me see it clear, but like this problem's only going to be, solved most likely if someone comes and spends time here. Yeah. So yeah, so we're here for the mission and uh the foreseeable future, I would say maybe a good bit of this year. Um it depends on how things go, which it's unpredictable. It's mm-hmm. finding partnerships and people and uh you can't ever predict how that'll work. So yeah. That's why one reason why I love this brother over here. I just he just drove 27 hours total by the time he gets home in three days just to introduce me to you wonderful people. So, well, in fairness, you know, uh, you guys didn't even know you were doing a podcast today, by the no, way. No, we didn't. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't know I was coming here until yesterday, I think. Or yeah, the, the timing uh, between the subject matter for Resurrected and every time I get a chance to speak, I speak on missions. Mm hmm. And kind of God's testimony through me and missions, how you take someone who's unworthy to do that and God drops you somewhere to serve. And fairness and, and just, you know, we were headed down where we were and I said, you know what, this is on my heart. Just pick up the phone and call Blake. I said, hey, I got a guy I need you to meet. Okay, we'll see you down here. We'll see what we can get worked out. That's mm-hmm. it. I mean, that's a level of trust. I, I appreciate that immensely. Yeah. Um, for it so thank you no thank thank you you. i mean i i was wondering why you were coming down here blake blake called me and he just said he said how said there's somebody you you need to meet and i was like well yeah we have that we have that type of trust i'm like well roger that tell him to come on down (laughs) but um but now i know why you guys came down here because we just we just got to have this conversation I mean, to me, mm. that's what today's all, was all about. Yeah, is being able to sit down and uh, and hear Kevin talk about what he just talked about, and um, this was it, man. So we'll we'll see. Yeah, at least for today, <laughs> this was why we all came together today. That's right. Um, absolutely amazing, brother. Uh, Kevin, thank you for. Um, for sharing all that and uh and it was just it was insightful for me uh it's got chili's mind turning 
Yeah. Chili won't be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> well, that was a that was a huge blessing for me for sure, and really enjoyed that. Can I call you K Dog? That's better. Thanks. Okay. That's better. Well, well, that was a huge blessing for me, K Dog. So we don't get to hear we don't get to hear stuff like this very often no. on the Three of Seven podcast. You know, it's usually just me, Chili, and Blake and Krista sitting around talking crap to each other. So uh, I just want to encourage everybody out there that God wants to use you. And he, Why don't he, you pray for everybody real quick, Hal? Before you do that, because <clears throat> you were going to cut into something I really wanted to say at multiple points, yeah. but it just didn't happen. But Anything you've heard is simply God's grace. It's not anything I or somebody else accomplished, yeah. mustered up, built, <laughs> we're masculine enough, built up enough strengths, we're smart enough to figure out. Like It's simply God's grace. If it weren't for God's grace, we'd be wretched sinners doing what ISIS does, to be honest. And the only reason those things are held back in certain parts is God's grace. Otherwise, the world would destroy itself. Um so yeah. I just want to add that in there. It's, uh, amen it, to that, son. Yeah. Anything good in our lives is His grace, yep. and it doesn't it doesn't mean one thing looks more cool or higher or anything the other. It's just put yourself out there for God. And uh, if if you don't believe in God's grace and in His plan for humanity, um, can you explain to me why the human race has not become extinct <laughs> by this point? We sh- <laughs> we literally should be extinct. As humans on the earth. Yeah. Why are we not firing nuclear missiles right now? It's God's grace. Oh, it could have happened so <laughs> yeah. many times. Like, yeah. We'll save that for uh, part two. <laughs> Four, whatever it is. All right. Um, dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity today uh, just to come down and, um, and fellowship and share. Uh, we're appreciative of every opportunity and that you give us to serve, Lord. We just ask you continue to put on our hearts and direct our minds and our hearts on the direction that you want to go, Lord. And we're so thankful for the grace that you give us and your son, Jesus. We just ask, keep our vision clear, Lord. Give us the strength and most of all, give us the courage uh, to step out in faith and trust you uh, even when we can't see. Mm. We ask you to continue to bless all of these ministries that we've talked about today and encourage everyone out there. Touch the hearts of the ones who are looking to get plugged in, serve, or the ones that are getting, looking to know you and find out more about you. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen, Amen brother. Thank you, Hal. All right. Enough said. <laughs>